Hello and welcome to the Weird Geeks Horror Channel, where every Friday we'll be covering a new installment in the classic horror franchise. Warning, this podcast contains strong language and spoilers throughout. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as a ship Go to weirdgeeks.com to check out our other podcast series, social medias, Twitch streams, contact details, and news on our very own feature films, albums, and shorts that are currently in production for our publisher, We Are Tessellate. Weird Geeks is not affiliated with any of the rights holders of the films referenced, and no infringement is intended. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. Geeks! Geeks! Geeks. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Weird Geeks Horror Show. Every single Friday we take you for another installment in the classic horror retrospective franchise. Right now we're dealing with Scream. We're on number three. I'm your host, Al White, and joining me throughout all these movies is Christina Masterson. Hi. And Alexander Chad. Hello, Al. I'm getting better each week. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Scream 3 out in 2000. It gets a 5.5 on the IMDb's. The lowest so far in the Scream franchise. <laughs> I accidentally saw that rating just before I watched it because I, think oh, I, was, really? ran- cause I, I was renting it off Amazon and it had the rating up there and I was like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Cock. <laughs> I wish I hadn't seen that. <laughs> Budgeted a measly $40 million. Hell of a lot more than any of the, well, any, either of the previous Scream movies. But we'll get into all that stuff in a wrap up. But by far the most expensive so far. Grossed $162 million, Not the highest gross of screen movies, but still, good return. Mm. Good return. And we flip it every time. I keep thinking we don't have a coherent podcast because sometimes I do the cast stuff first and then we go into the year. And sometimes I do the year and I go into the cast. Which way around do you reckon it makes more sense? Yeah. You want to be to do this? So, okay. All right. So we're in the year 2000. Like, <laughs> I thought you were, you were like shaking your head like couldn't give a shit. Al. <laughs> couldn't really. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> The year 2000 then, so we like to look at the landscape of the year, if you're new to our podcast. Hello and welcome. Please head on over to weirdgeeks.com, weirdgeeks.com, where you can subscribe to all of our previous podcasts and franchises and fun shit like that. So we like to look at the top gross, the top 10 films of the year 2000, so we know what this movie was going up against, and who knows, maybe like the Star Wars movies we talked about, it crept up in there. Christina Masterson, you have the worldwide box office. Okay. Top 10. So we have number 10 is What Lies Beneath. Ooh. That's with uh, Harrison Ford, Michelle yep. Pfeiffer. I love this movie. Really? Yeah. I've never I seen it. What is it about? I remember going to see it. So there's an interesting story with this one. I think we told before in a previous podcast, but it's directed by Robert Zemeckis, who did Back to the Future, Back to the Future. and stuff. And he was, they were shooting Castaway. Do you remember that Tom Hanks movie? Yeah. Really cool movie. They were shooting Castaway, and there's a big, not to spoil Castaway for anyone who hasn't seen it, you should watch it, it's fucking great, but there's a bit where a whole bunch of months- I never watched it. Watch it. So I'll watch it. Seriously. That's a really, really great movie. But there's a whole bunch of months passed by at one point in the movie, and Tom Hanks had to lose a whole bunch of weight. And so what they did was they had to postpone, they like shot half the movie and then postponed it for many, 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 many months for him to get ready. And then came back and shot the rest of the movie. Oh, made wow. him just starve in real time. Exactly. Oh, sad. But the problem was, was that in order to do, they wanted to keep the same crew. 
And as you guys know, it's hard to keep people in, tied into these contracts and all that stuff. So what they ended up doing, the only way they could do it was they had to make another movie in that gap period to keep the same crew on board. Love so then it. when they went back to shooting Castaway, they had it. Wow. So they went and just made What Lies Beneath, basically just to fill that gap. <laughs> and then came back and finished Castaway. Wow. And it made the top 10. Yeah, it's fucking great. What Lies Beneath, it's genuinely, it's a, quite an overlooked movie. Even though it was very big, not many people remember it. That's pretty amazing yeah, because... <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> no, I thought you were going to talk, so I stopped talking. <laughs> I was going to say something, and then I was like, no, I'm not going to say it. Ah, so we both, we both I thought you were just like, I remember, and then you just like went into your memories. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, good movie. Do you remember, or do you not remember anymore? I remember that movie. I went to see it at the cinema. I remember not realizing it was going to be as spooky as it was. Yeah, it's pretty spooky. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, number nine, we have X Men. Ah, at the beginning. Oh, is that the first one? Yeah, X Men. I think what's Spider Man in two thousand? Maybe we'll see that later on the list. I'm not sure. But this was like the year, wasn't it, when comic book movies Mm, sort of started? Made like X Men and the first Spider Man made this sort of call to arms of these can be different, and then we're still in it. Yeah. Twenty eighteen. You go. 18 years later. And number eight, we have The Perfect Storm. That's with oh, George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg. Oh, yeah. This is a true story about some sailors who got into this oh, yeah, terrible storm. Fisherman thing. Oh. Yeah, it's actually yeah. pretty decent. Those are Big stressful. CGI waves. Yeah, it probably mm. looks terrible now. <laughs> okay, number seven. Seven. Meet the parents. Ooh. Ben Stiller, like yeah. Yeah, I liked it. I watched I it. it. Yeah, I liked it. Number six, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Wow, six. Mm. Jim Carrey. I thought I would have been higher, actually. Well, in the yeah. US, it was the first. It was number one. But worldwide, oh, it's go. number six. Yeah, the rest of the world doesn't give a shit about Will Ferrell. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Carrey, it, no, true. It, it's Jim Carrey. Oh, that was Jim Carrey. Of course it is. Yeah. Sorry, it's I think a Ron Howard one. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, sure. I don't know if... Yep, and uh, it's a movie. <laughs> number five, we have Dinosaur. What's Dinosaur? Oh, that was Disney with their very first like feature-length CGI. CGI movie. Oh. Yeah. It was their first full CGI. Um, not uh, like Pixar had been doing stuff, but Pixar hadn't joined Disney at that point. Ah, cool. And that was, that was Disney's first full one. Wow. And was, was this like, one very good? I don't, I don't know if I ever saw Dinosaur. It was a bit of a... Like it was a bit of a disappointment, I think, critically. It was I remember it was really hyped at the time because mm. it was meant to be photorealistic dinosaur sort of mm. animation thing. It was alright. I remember a bit a bit just dull. Oh, yeah, I remember it wasn't that, yeah. the most exciting, but it was Well it made a lot of money. Well done, Disney. Number four. What <laughs> women want. Mel Gibson. Yep. Now, what's that? Helen Number Hunt. four is what? What yep. women want. Oh, what women want. This was before wow. his uh fall from grace. I was going to say, this fact when Mel Gibson was, you know, <laughs> notable. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Now he hides behind a camera. Number three, Castaway. Three. So both yeah. films made top ten. Fucking hell. Amazing. Um, number two, we have Gladiator. Russell Crowe, mm. Ridley Scott, Joaquin Phoenix. I never watched it. Big Oscar winner. Uh, yeah. 
I don't like those movies, but I don't know. Maybe if I watched them, I'd like them. I wasn't a big fan of Gladiator. I like Gladiator fine. I think I was really grumpy that year because Russell Crowe won the Oscar for that and not The Insider, which came out that year. And he was so good in The Insider. He won uh, an Oscar for Gladiator? Fair point. Yeah. Wow. That was sort of like a, a, you know how some actors go through those kind of like golden sort of periods where they have like back-to-back films because he did that. And then I think A Beautiful Mind was the next year, right? That he yeah. was nominated uh, for. Wow. Yeah. That was Ron Howard, wasn't it? Yeah. Huh. So that was like his little golden moment. And as number one, we have Mission Impossible. Oh, two. No, sorry, two. Mission Impossible, two. Oh, really? The John Woo one? Mm -hmm, John Woo. I would say fun fact, but it's really, there's nothing fun about it. Uh, Because Mission Impossible Fallout is about to come out, the sixth Mission Impossible film. So for some, because I I told you guys in a previous podcast, I was listening to now playing James Bond ones, and I've never been a James Bond fan. It made me and Katie go and check out a few James Bond films and rewatch all the Daniel Craig ones. And then we were like, you know what? Let's watch the Mission Impossible movies before we watch Fallout. So we've been watching all the Mission Impossible movies, which Katie has all these great memories of the first one because it was one of the few movies she was allowed to watch as a kid. So she watched it again and again and again. And we just did number one and number two. They're not, they're not good movies. <laughs> like, they're really yeah, right. not good movies. Like, the first one, like, I mean, I guess it's still sort of a classic, but it's pretty bad. And the second one, I remember liking, and it's fucking terrible. Like, really terrible. Yeah, oh, recently, me the and... The world uh, loved it. <laughs> my um, housemate Carter and I watched Rogue Nation. So, I, I've only seen the first one, and I haven't seen any of the others. Really? And watching Rogue Nation, my experience was, I had no investment in the narrative, but I was just like so pumped for all like because it just bounces from action sequence to action sequence like all those set pieces and that was it it was just like cool that one was great and like enjoying one and then not enjoying the next and yeah yeah, that was pretty much my experience of it and then kind of watching youtube yeah exactly and getting to the end and being like what was the story (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i'm hoping the next three yeah gonna be a bit better well, uh, oh, one thing. Oh. Just want, I thought you guys would be interested. Number 11 was Scary Movie. Oh. This is the year Scary Movie came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Coming higher than Scream 3. Yeah, Scream 3 was number 27. Ooh, Scary Movie <laughs> fucking whooped his ass. Yeah. Ouch. That's, That's painful. It. That's painful. Because this is, I mean, we'll talk about it, but Scream 3 is sort of a parody on the first film. So... It's funny that a different parody on the first film, an unofficial one, mm-hmm. made more money. Yep. Thank you, Christina. You are welcome. Alexander, you have some Hello. horror movies for us from the year 2000. From the year 2000. Yep, I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that one. I don't either. Uh, that's actually a little bit from uh, Conan. He used to do, leading up to the year 2000, they would oh, do this segment yes. called In the Year 2000 and then just say, like, <laughs> how, how life on Earth will change. But it was just all these oh, really maybe. silly things. Uh, anyway, I remember. horror films in the year 2000. Starting off is American Psycho with Christian Ooh. Bale. Great movie. Yeah. <laughs> and this one, which I'm really excited about, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. <laughs> All they gotta oh. do is make one more Blow Witch movie and we can put it in our podcast franchise. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I remember going this to see bad. this and just being like, what? What is this? What's going on? <laughs> what? Why are the people just in a house doing nothing? Yeah, and why are they all naked in the woods and having <laughs> yeah, sex? Oh, this is really bad. 
Yeah, Book of Shadows is terrible. That was how not to do a sequel. I think it goes down in the halls of film history as the one of the worst sequels ever made. Boy, it was bad. It was bad. Next up, we have Blood, The Last Vampire. This is a live-action version of a anime film, which is actually the anime films from the people who created Ghost in the Shell and stuff. Those animators, not created, but did Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, Good. it's a really bad live-action movie. Great. So uh, check that one out. Uh, next up is yeah. Cherry Falls. So this is, I mean, we're right at the end. We should say we're 2000. Uh, we've had a, a sort of new slasher boom because of Scream. And the last five years have been stuffed with a whole bunch. Nowhere near as many as we're in the 80s. Like nowhere near. Not even mm-hmm. remotely near. Uh, there's actually very few slasher films in, from the Northeast. But they were still going. And Cherry Falls was kind of the last, uh, we'll try not to say the last Scream. Uh, the last, uh, what do you call it? Flailings, I guess. Right. Of slasher in the 90s trying to be relevant. It was pretty decent, actually. It was pretty good. Cool. Uh, this next one I remember because I went to see it um, in the cinema and I think it was Australia's uh, attempt at sort of jumping on this slasher bandwagon. And it was, I remember it got a lot of press at the time because Molly Ringwald was the lead um, and it's yeah. a film cut. I'm so happy you know this movie. I do, yeah. It makes yeah. me happy. Yeah. Australian Is it movie. good? I remember enjoying it at the time. I haven't seen it since <laughs> then, so I wouldn't remember really. Um, mm. it's not, yeah, I don't remember it like being like I wasn't blown away by it. Otherwise, I think I'd I always, remember. I always, more. I always go back to it thinking, "Oh, this was a cinema release in Australia. It must, and it's got Molly Ringwald. Surely, this is one of the good sort of you know hidden slasher gems." It's really not very good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's you know, there's much, much worse. Don't get me wrong, but it's not. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Does the killer have like garden shears? Is that why it's um, called cut? Maybe. Is that what it is? There's something to do with that? I can't remember. Maybe. Anyway, we're going to have Molly Ringwald. Go, Molly. Oh, she should have said yes to Scream. Yeah, she should have. <laughs> yeah, she should have. Uh, next <laughs> this up. This was her trying to make up for it. And yeah, this, it probably was. This was one that I really enjoyed when it was released, Final Destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in a new kind of, and actually, I was just talking on a drive with Katie Dave yesterday about, I'm doing these lists to do with the best slasher films ever made that I've been working on for about three years, watching every slasher film. And we kept talking about what is a slasher film, and we we're discussing where the final destination were slasher film. And the conclusion we came to was no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there you go. We solved Thank that you. one. Don't worry. It's all closed. We will be doing those films in the future, by the way. Well, I don't think we have to now because cause you just... I just solved it. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing left to discuss. I mean, they are, to be clear, they are horror films, but not slasher films. Well, but you've answered the most important question. <laughs> uh, next up, uh, Ginger Snaps. <laughs> Ginger Snaps is Canadian horror. Uh, it was oh. actually really good and important at the time. Yeah, it was about yeah. two girls. It was basically yep. a metaphor of uh, getting your periods, basically. And yep. it was to do with werewolves. And it was really good. good. That sounds Cheap. cool. Cool. Yeah, I remember this coming up. Ginger I think snap. it must have been on another list, maybe when we did Chucky. Because I remember you you talking about it then. Moving on, Hellraiser Inferno. You can check out the retrospective on that one. Exactly. Thank you. Yep. You can learn all of our feelings. As me, Justin, and Katie Watson talk through all the Hellraiser movies at weirdgeeks.com. Please listen so it was worth, worth our time. Another film I remember seeing at the cinema that I thought was really goofy and not scary, Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon. Yeah. It was just the Invisible Man, wasn't it? Remake, basically. <laughs> yeah. And it was basically a reason for him just to be really pervy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was like, oh, I'm invisible. I'm going to stand in the women's showers. Like, that was basically what the movie was. It did have a really cool ending, though, at the time. It looked beautiful with the rain falling on him. Invisible and stuff. 
And that Paul Verhoeven, I think, who did Robocop and Showgirls and stuff. Ooh. Yeah, Robocop. Um, Showgirls, wasn't that brought up last, last week? Oh, no, Striptease, should I think. be brought up every week. Striptease oh, yeah, strip was mentioned by Christina. Christina brought up. <laughs> she loves Striptease. <laughs> Next, we have <laughs> Leprechaun in the Hood. Now, is this part of the Leprechaun series? This is a part of the Leprechaun series, yeah. In the Hood? Oh yeah! Oh like, is he God. does he have a hood on, or is in he, or is no, he in, in the, the hood? hood as he's in, going like, in you know, gangster the hood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's a sequel to In the Hood as well, which is the next Leprechaun movie. We'll get to them one day. <laughs> God damn! Uh, next up is uh, Pitch Black. This is the ri- part of Rip. the Riddick Chronicles with Vin Diesel. Yeah, well, the, well, yeah, before they were Riddick Chronicles, when it was yeah. just Pitch Black. Yeah. Um, yeah, really, really great. I mean, this is Vin Diesel's first movie really i mean first sort of breakthrough movie and it's fantastic i love pitch black yeah shriek if you know what i did last friday the 13th <laughs> now is this a real <laughs> horror film or is this a parody comedy spoof kind of thing i mean yeah it's a parody spoof kind of thing for sure <laughs> it was in exactly the same vein as scary movie yeah great um and we have the sequel to urban legend urban legends final cut don't know if i ever saw this one you would know because the killer's wearing a fencing mask. Because, <laughs> like, what mask can we use that no one's done before? <laughs> fencing. <laughs> yeah, it's not very How good. Refined. A, it is about a bunch <laughs> of film students, though, so it actually has a lot in common with Scream 3. Um, Interesting. But mm. there's some film sets and stuff like that. Cool. And rounding out the list, and what is clearly our highest grossing horror film of that year, What Lies Beneath. There we go. Well played, Harrison Ford. <laughs> And Michelle, yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer was really good in that movie, actually. Really good. Mm. You should check it out. But most of all, check out Castaway. <laughs> great movie. <laughs> great. Uh, Christina, great your horror. hair is fantastic. I, I love it so much. <laughs> look at that. You look like. Why? Because it looks like your hair? <laughs> yeah, basically. You look like Lion O from Thundercats. I love it. That's true. That is true. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Thank you very much. That's probably good. Thank you very much, Alexander. For those horror films so we're in yeah tail end of uh, still some slashes coming out but definitely dwindling we've got a few spookies beginning and then some like psychological stuff american psycho it seems the horror genre had found itself with the slashes in the 90s and then wasn't lost yet but it was starting to drift again in terms of what people wanted we hadn't quite got to torture porn yet that's going to be a few years later so yeah here we go then scream 3 landing in the middle of all of that directed again by wes craven written not again, by Aaron Kruger. Mm. Not Kevin Williamson. And we're going to get into why that happened. But this dude had written, uh, well, he went on to write Reindeer Games. He'd written Arlington Road just before this, which is why he got the job. Uh, he went on to also write the remake of The Ring, The Ring 2, mm. a whole bunch of Transformers sequels. So, you know. Are you sure he didn't him. get the job because his last name was Kruger? I know, right? How weird is that? That's How weird. How weird is that? Yeah, and then he wrote the Ghost in the Shell uh, live-action version with Scarlett Hansen, and he's actually written the upcoming Dumbo movie that Tim Burton's mm. doing. So he's, uh, he's getting plenty of work then. <laughs> doing all right. Uh, DP'd by Peter Deming again. You might remember from the first film that DP got fired, and then they brought in someone to finish the last few days. That dude's been with them the rest of the ride so far. Wow. Awesome. And I, I will say, actually, like once I found that out, it, things made more sense to me. I do think the original DP from the first Scream had a better eye than Peter Deming. Music once more by Marco Beltrami, starring Deep Breath, 
Leif Schreiber as Cotton Weary, Neve Campbell as Sydney Prescott, Yay. Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, Patrick Dempsey coming yes. in as Mark Kincaid, Scott Foley in his very first film, I believe, as Roman Bridger, Lance Henriksen, oh. Horace Stewart as John Milton, Emily Mortimer as Angelina Tyler, Parker Posey Yay. as Jennifer Jolie, Patrick Warburton as Stephen Stone, David Arquette as Dewey Riley, Lawrence Hecht returning as Mr. Prescott, who had some time away from some <laughs> comic cons, apparently. Jamie Kennedy as Randy Meeks, Carrie Fisher as Bianca, Jenny McCarthy as Sarah Darling, Matt Keesler as Tim Prince, Dion Richmond as Tyson Fox, and Jay and Silent Bob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh boy, there's a lot of fucking people. Shot over 12 weeks, which means this was minimum 60 days of shooting. Wow. Which, holy shit, do I want to make movies like that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Yes. Man, I had a fucking fight for my movie to have 30 days. We had to sacrifice so much because <laughs> normally indie movies, 17 to 20 days, 21 maybe. 30 days I was like adamant about, so we gave up a lot. 60 days would be, oh, that'd be so good. All the movies <laughs> I've done is just like, 12 days <laughs> <laughs> get it done hey when if you got a 40 lucky. million dollar budget do you want. so this movie okay so we actually the last two movies came one year after another this one we had what a three-year gap i think it is um and they wanted to kind of get one out as quick as they could kelvin williamson actually wrote a treatment for this uh now some people say he wrote an entire script there are some conflicting things on this that i've read so he wrote either a 20 to 30 page treatment or he wrote a full script now that people have also come out, like Wes Craven afterwards, to say, oh, he always planned it as a trilogy. Some people are saying he put not only the idea for Scream 2 in that original script pitch uh, for number one, but also Scream 3. But I've seen some video footage of people flipping through that, and there only seems to be Scream 2 at the end of it. So I don't think that's right. I'm sure in his brain, he always had that thing of it would be nice to do a trilogy and maybe had a couple of ideas floating around. But, you know, don't think pen was put to paper. So, yeah, he was, you might remember that we said the very first script he had sold was called Teaching Mrs. Tingle. But no one, it was bought, and then no one made it. So he went and did Scream. Now, because Kevin Williamson is obviously a hugely hot property, they wanted to make that movie, and he was going to get to direct it. So he actually got to direct Teaching Mrs. Tingle. And that was happening about this time. Now, he really wanted to write a screenplay for Scream 3, but he didn't really have the time to do the full thing. That's the what I've read from the most amount of uh, sources. Now, his original pitch, however, was quite different. Did you guys know about this? What was going to happen? Uh, I was reading a little bit about it. Okay. So, his original idea for this movie was going to be sort of similar in a way. There was going to be a lot more of Nev Campbell's character, Sydney, in it. Mm. Um, the t- twist at the end was going to be that Stu, old Matthew uh, yeah. Lillard, yeah. was still alive. And he had actually survived the television being pushed onto his face in the first film and had just been in prison all through the second film and just no one bothered to mention it. And he was orchestrating all the deaths in number two and in number three from prison. And it was actually going to take, it was actually going to be a huge group. It was going to be a massive club of movie nerds, basically, who were huge fans of the Stab movies, who he had then got in contact with. And they were kind of this cult who were then doing the killings for him Mm-mm. and then presumably a big sort of fight when he gets out of prison or something at the end between Stu and her again at the end like a charles manson type of thing yeah i mean that's very nice of you <laughs> yeah i mean it is matthew lillard yeah 
<laughs> you just picture them two together. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I have to say, the last person I want returning to the series is Matthew Lillard, to be <laughs> honest. I think the last thing this movie needs is more goofiness. <laughs> now, the studio, the old Weinsteins, didn't like this idea very much, partly because the Stu's thing seemed a bit ridiculous, but also mostly because, do you know what happened between these two movies? The Columbine Massacre. So, yeah, the school shooting happened. It changed a lot in horror movies at this period. And I think a lot of people who have problems with 90s horror films for being too safe in this period don't really put that together. Studios didn't want to show horror. They didn't want to glorify teens killing themselves, and particularly in schools. So Kevin Williamson's original script for this was going to take place back in Woodsboro. The school was still going to be involved. And the Weinstein stepped in and said, nope, we're not going to do that. We don't want to show Stu, a classmate, wanting to kill another previous classmate. That's not, mm-hmm. you know, going to make people happy. Kevin Williams said, well, I don't have time to write anything else because I'm doing all this stuff. He was making other movies and he went off and did that. So he left. So they brought in this guy, Aaron Kruger, and he had six weeks, basically, to before uh. they started shooting to put together an entirely new script. So they decided to move the narrative away from Woodsboro so it'd feel less like Columbine. Now, they were having other problems as well. Wes Craven didn't want to come back to make this movie. He wanted to do other stuff, and he wanted to get away from horror again. He kept feeling he's always pigeonholed in horror, and he's always trying to get away from it for his career. So he made a deal with Miramax, basically. was like, all right, I will do Scream 3 for you, but you have to let me do something that I want to do, which they did. So they let him do a Meryl Streep movie. <laughs> which is where the fuck is it what's it called uh, music of the heart in 1999 <sighs> so between scream 2 and scream wow. 3 you made music of the heart with meryl streep which is about a story of a school teacher struggle to teach violin to any sit inner city harlem kids that's the movie he wanted to make mm-hmm. maybe we'll cover that in another retrospective well good uh, for we'll him see. so yeah he did that and came back kind of reluctantly for scream 3 but he did enjoy working with his family of people you know like, it's always nice coming back and working yeah. with same actors and same crew. Or some of the same crew. Another problem they're having was Nev Campbell. She was booked up. Hot property. She was doing lots more Party 5. She was doing other movies that were coming out. She didn't have much availability. She only had 20 days that she could shoot this movie. Which normally would be fine, as Christina was saying. <laughs> <But> <laughs> when you're doing a 60 plus day shoot. Not much time. But that's why they wrote her a smaller role, right? Exactly. So they yeah. basically wrote her out of the movie almost. Even though they're still trying to make her the lead, Aaron mm-hmm. Kruger tried to come up with a way to write it out. And the Weinsteins were putting pressure on him of saying, let's focus more on the adults so it does feel less like Columbine. So he was trying to write mm-hmm. a script that focused more on the adults, less on the teenagers. Yeah. So it was, it was a difficult, difficult time. The other thing that they said to Wes Craven, which I love this, they then came to Wes Craven and said to him, we don't want any blood or violence in this movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Shut up. Uh, Which Wes Craven was like, it's a fucking horror movie. Um, and they said, yep, yeah, but you know, because of Columbine, we don't want violence, we don't want blood, we need to make this more of a comedy, uh, play up to those tropes, take it all out. And he said, well, then you need to call it a different movie or find a different director, because... It's not Scream without violence and blood. We're making a fucking horror film. So he fought against them, and he did win, but to an extent. And we'll definitely talk about this as we go through. They ended up using 10 gallons of fake blood in this movie. 
In Scream 1, they used 50 gallons. And in Scream 2, they used 30 <laughs> gallons. So he did kind of win, but they really had to draw back the violence and the blood that was on screen in this film. And it's uh, why we end up with quite a different feeling movie, I feel. God, Wes Craven must have gone crazy. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want to make horror movies, but when he does, he wants to make fucking proper horror movies. And they were sanitizing it. Yeah, I have to say, like, I've, I've watched this movie many times before. Uh, Christina, this is your first time, right? Yeah. Alex? This was my first time, I realized. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I thought I had seen this one, but yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it. I haven't seen it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, this was my, I've seen it many times and I have to say, I've, I've watched a lot of documentaries. I didn't know a lot of those facts about this film and it does make this film make a lot more sense to me now. Like, not learning those facts after watching it again for this podcast, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, and we'll talk about how much they get away with this, this sort of compromised vision they had to do. But yeah, definitely sad to see Kevin Williamson go. It would be nice to have him finish this part of the trilogy, but there you go. So there's lots of other little things we're going to talk about, other changes that ended up happening and weird stuff. For instance, they ended up casting the guy who played Kincaid, who Christina Masson seemed happy about. Patrick Dempsey. Who? My Dempsey, Dempsey. yes. My Aww. Dempsey. <laughs> they cast him the day before they started <gasps> shooting his scenes. No way. <laughs> yeah, I read that. He had one night to learn like six pages of dialogue. Basically. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Good so thing he's so talented. Right, I mean. right. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a it was a <laughs> bit so of cute. a shambles. What are you talking about? It just melts. <laughs> just melts. Yeah. Excellent. All right, so let's just get into the meat of the movie, then, shall we, guys? Scream free begins immediately in Hollywood sign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. New location straight away. We're in LA. We're in the big smoke. I, I feel I really appreciate this time watching it. That Hollywood sign means everything to this movie. Opening the film with that Hollywood sign tells you everything you need to know. This is all going to be about the industry. It's all going to be industry in jokes. It's going to be completely revolving around Hollywood. Yeah. Which is very different from everything we've seen before. And then we've, we've started off with Cotton Weary. So he's Woo! now a talk show host. Got Alex, it. you're happy. I knew you'd be happy. I Cotton so weary. I knew you'd be happy. Love the name. Love the name. Looking less weary in this film. Yeah. Looking pretty. I turned to Bethany peppy. and I said, "I love this guy's name, Cotton Weary." <laughs> she walked out of the room. <laughs> Your child is going to be named Cotton. Yeah, weary. Oh, Cotton, Cotton weary. Chard. That Cotton is a weary good name. Chard. <laughs> it sounds like a salad you'd get in LA. <laughs> So yeah, he's now a talk show host, number one apparently, uh, national talk show host, doing the, what's it called, the uh, 100% Cotton, is his catchphrase <laughs> yeah. or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's sitting in an LA traffic jam, and he's on the phone uh, to, I don't know, who is it, is it his assistant? He's like, agent maybe? His manager, agent? Yeah, oh, no, sure. Like that. And he's saying he doesn't want to be part of another stupid slasher flick, um, which we're going to learn later. He's just done. I guess he's driving back right then, isn't he? From doing his cameo, probably in step mm-hmm. three or something. And then mm-hmm. a girl rings him up, and she starts flirting with him. Doesn't pretend she doesn't know who she's talking to, and then turns out she's a big hundred percent Cotton fan. And she realizes she's talking to the Cotton Weary, and he's clearly all into this, still enjoying those fans uh, and getting booty calls whenever he can. And then suddenly the voice turns to Ghostface. Says, "I know you have a girlfriend. I'm right outside her shower." 
and then tells him that she's a step up from Maureen Prescott. So we're immediately getting like, okay, we're tying it back into Sydney, we're tying back into a mother again straight away, and the mm-hmm. history with Con and a mother. So I quite like. Yeah, and me too. I mean, instantly this ghost face is scarier than um the last ghost face. You think so? Just with the voice, you think? Yeah, like, yeah. Just with the threats and the voice and the motive behind the voice. You know, you just feel like this one's just a little, a lot more intense. The updated yeah, seems- uh, Vox modulator. Yeah, we'll get to that. But I do think that's one of the reasons it feels creepy. It's like changing from someone's voice to Ghostface's voice is quite creepy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it immediately seems more desperate. He's like asking where Sydney is straight away in this first scene. So we're really mm-hmm. setting that all up straight away. Ghostface is looking for Sydney. We don't know yet, but Sydney's yeah out in hiding. And so yeah, cuts off the phone. Cotton finds a magical shortcut from the LA traffic somehow. I love yeah. when people do this in movies where they're just like, oh, I'm sitting in traffic and then, oh, an emergency's coming off. Oh, I'll pull off of the traffic though. I was just hanging out in for no reason. Mm. Yeah. Well, why were you in it? Big budget opening, right? He's driving through LA streets with traffic and stuff and yeah. we feel the money here. And then we're cutting back to his 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 uh, house or apartment, which isn't as nice as I think for the number one talk show host in yeah. America. Right? It's, it's pretty small and it's part of like an apartment complex, but mm-hmm. it is yeah. in Hollywood, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess. Maybe this is just one of, maybe he's got other houses. He's got one in New York or something. You know? mm. Maybe this is just his yeah girlfriend's house. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Good point. Maybe he's just going around to see his girlfriend. So we see, yeah, she's taking a shower, of course, and we see that the phone line has been cut. Mm-hmm. Wes Craven's still doing his thing, cutting before the boob shots, trying to like get around her magical towel. Yeah, it was, you know, that that shower scene again. Very contrived. But, yeah. but they didn't have it in the first movie, only in the second. That's true. And this one. So, there, so there's a bit here leading up to... I'll, I'll let you continue. I'll, I'll bring it up. <laughs> what? No, just talking, it, about, just talking about how contrived it is. So the whole setup of her in the shower and she comes out of the shower... Uh, with her towel wrapped around her and then puts on like her little slip and then she hears something out in the hall. So she walks out at this point without the towel. She's already got her slip on, but she's dripping wet on the Water. floor. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is very weird because she's already like dried off and put her slip on. And the reason for that, like the payoff for that little bit of dripping is just absolutely not worth it in my opinion. Oh yeah, so she could, so they could slip, <laughs> so right? She, so she could slip later on when she's getting chased around. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, the yeah, worst yeah, yeah. payoff. I didn't even, I don't even notice that. To be honest, I noticed. I the noticed it too because I was like, um, "Oh wait, she's dripping. Oh, she naked. Oh, why would she be like walking through her house, scared, trying to like figure something out, naked?" Mm. And then yeah. she had a slip on. I was all confused. Like, for me, it would have made sense if if we saw the dripping water after she came out of the shower and still had the towel around her rather than the other way around. Like, if they just do that slip into the hallway or something before she, like, when she hears the sound, because she hears someone, basically, she hears Cotton come back to the house with his voice Mm -hmm. at least, but we don't see him. And yeah, like, yeah, it makes sense if she just stepped out. Also, who gets out of the shower, dries off, and just drops the towel to the floor? You hang it back up or you throw it on the bed. I know, right? Terrible girlfriends. That's who what does that. A slob. What a slob. Dirty girls. <laughs> Drop it quick, gotten weary. She drops a towel on the floor. 
All right, so yeah, we're getting a twist here. It is Ghostface. It's not Cotton. And I remember like being in the cinema seeing this film when it first came out, and I really liked. Like again, the opening's never going to be as good as that first one. It just mm. doesn't have the impact. But I was like, this is a cool twist. Like I like this twist that yeah. now we have someone who can do different voices. It completely makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Um, it's just a magical box. But because yeah. later on we have like one line of dialogue with someone like, oh my god, Dewey, he's got all of our voices. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think that's how voices work. <laughs> Trap them like tiny spirits. <laughs> but it's cool for the movie. Yeah, it is cool for the movie. She comes. Yes, yeah, she's like looking around. She's like, "Don't you play any more stab games?" So just call yeah. where his sex games include him <laughs> pretending to stalk and <laughs> rape people. I guess. Yeah. Fair enough. Whatever. As long as it's consensual, that's fine. Cotton comes home. Actual real Cotton comes home in a panic. His girlfriend attacks him, thinking he wants to kill her. So we think she's dead, right? But she's oh, hiding. And when space. he comes home, he's like searching around the house, and he takes off his jacket. And grabs a fire poke. And at the time, I was like, that, that's really odd. Like, that he felt necessary to take off his jacket. And I read that the reason behind that was that Liev Schreiber had, had packed on some muscle between the films. No and way. Wanted, <laughs> wanted to show it off. No way. Yep. So that's he's I read. just like his character, basically. Just pure vanity. Just wanted to show that he balked. An idiot. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I didn't even notice he was more muscly. Is he just like, he takes it off and he's in a vest or something? <laughs> he's just like in that tight shirt. But like, yeah, I didn't even notice the muscle part thing. I just thought it was like, that's weird. Like you, you've rushed home <laughs> in a panic, <laughs> but you have time to take off your coat. Oh, an idiot. Yeah, so she's hidden. So what actually happened there? Like Ghostface attacked her and then she's just hid and Ghostface sort of hid waiting for Cotton to come back, I guess. And they've just well, been the hiding door, yeah, in two the door separate... was still locked, right? <laughs> yeah, the door was still they've closed. They've just been waiting in two separate rooms for yeah. Con. There's just two people in a house waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then she thinks, obviously, it is Cotton, and then attacks him, and then as she's attacking him, Ghostface comes out, kills her, and then, are we surprised? Kills Cotton. That was really quick. But all of the all of the openings for these movies have been pretty intense, so. I wasn't that surprised because they usually start off with a big, a, like a big kill. Yep. Well, we're going to get one of those rules later, which is anyone can die in the third, mm-hmm. third part in a trilogy. And yeah, they do that right from the bat. They have to show us the stakes are real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not the original opening. The original opening was actually going to be with Nev Campbell. Um, and she was going to be attacked by Ghostface and she was going to kill Ghostface in the opening. And then you're going to find out it was just a crazed fan, basically, who had broken into where she was hiding and stuff. Oh, oh, that sounds cool. That's pretty cool. But yeah, instead we have this cotton thing. I kind of like it, you know, again. Yeah, I liked it. The, the twist with the voice is cool. I like yeah. seeing cotton die because it means, okay, who else is going to die in this movie, you know? Which, yep. Uh, we're going to find out not many people, <laughs> at least from the old films. <laughs> we're going to get new fodder. But still, pretty cool. Big screen title coming in again. Loving it. Coming in just at the right time. So we're with Sydney now. She's walking a dog. There's a thrown in line when she signs in on the phone thing where she's in Monterey. Oh. Um, looks oh, more to me like Malibu Hills, but I don't know. But yeah, Monterey apparently. Secluded life she's living now with security gates that you could jump over. <laughs> I know, right? A house that's made out of all glass windows and glass doors. <laughs> it's literally like she's doing like this 
code on a fucking wooden gate that you can just hop <laughs> right over. <laughs> and she's working as a phone counselor remotely. Uh, do you notice there's some nice little things around her house that call back to the old films? We've got the Fall of Troy from the uh, play from the second film is there and stuff. There's, she's wearing the uh, necklace yeah. with the with the the yeah, the Greek letters. Oh, she is huh? Yeah. yeah. Still thinking about that one. Mm. At this moment, I really like uh, where it's gone with her character and that she is li- living this like secluded life with a new identity and working as a counselor on the phone. I, I, I thought that idea was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, too. me too. And there are echoes. I mean, again, I don't want to spoil stuff, uh, but like you guys aren't, neither of you guys are doing the Halloween series, so I'm not going to spoil into the Halloween series, but there are echoes here to do with Jamie Lee Curtis's character and the journey she goes on in the Halloween films, um, mm. which I like because, again, the first Scream was very much all about Halloween 1, so it's nice they're sort of doing their own sort of version on Jamie Lee Curtis's role. That's cool. Yeah, so she's, Gail, sorry, then we cut to Gail Weathers giving a talk to a student, a whole bunch of student journalists, I think, because yeah, she says like, that. it's like, uh, yeah. Because they're all like crazy different ages and different, like, I don't know. I couldn't tell where the fuck she was. But anyway, she's telling them all to go as far as they can, do whatever you got to do, basically, get the job done. She seems to be back in bitchy Gale Weathers mode, which at the beginning of each of these movies, she's just like, learnt nothing. <laughs> and has returned to original Gale Weathers mode. Who cut Courtney Cox's hair in this film? Because <laughs> I think Rage those know. bangs are just like, looked like a kid had done it. <laughs> You know, I mean, that was really in in the 90s. So, oh, that was 2000. Well, yeah, it was in the, in the early 2000s, actually. And then yep. the little, like, um, at the end of the movie, the little, yep. the little, uh, like, sh- <laughs> those clip things, those little a- hair clips. Like, I remember wearing them, but I was like 13, <laughs> 16. She's like in her 30s in this movie, and she has like little <laughs> butterfly clips in her hair, like a cluster of them. So funny. Everyone did it. Everyone did it. I and guess. Plus it was 2000. Knows we no were age. all just happy to be alive, Christina. Do you remember? We thought everyone's going to oh, die. Oh, Y2K. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Planes falling from the skies. Yeah, That's we so true, it. Y2K. Worry, kids. We made it so you guys could be born. <laughs> yeah, so she's talking to these students. We do have like one student gets up and it's like saying, "Is was it worth it all to cut other your friend's throats, basically, to give, yeah, metaphorically, to get to where she You know who that was? To. No. It was Arquette's brother. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, give less Arquette's jobs. That's what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, why do our, all, the, all the Arquette's? His dad was in it, and now his little brother's in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's adorable. So, Mark Kincaid, old Dempsey boy. What do you love him from, then? What's he from? I don't know. He was I on uh, Grey's Anatomy. But he was in some other movies, right? And he was like in some 90s and 80s yeah. rom-com type things. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. something big. It wasn't Big Fat Wedding, was it? It was a weird, weird no. wedding or whatever it was. Okay, let me look it up. Let me look it up. <laughs> you looked up some pictures of Dempsey. Wasn't he in Heathers? Was he was in Heathers? He? No, he's too young to be in Heathers. Oh, would he? As a kid, you mean? Oh, he was in Enchanted. <sighs> oh, what the fuck? I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> So he's, part, he's the LAPD, comes to see Gail, tells her Cotton has been murdered, and then shows her a picture that was left on the scene of Sidney Prescott's mother, Maureen. What a terrible name. And she's all young in this picture. And then Neve, we cut to her, she's seeing the news in her retreat. She's seeing uh, her, the news on Cotton, and that he had just finished filming his cameo in Stab 3, Return to Woodsboro, the final part in the Stab trilogy. 
So then good old Red Right Hand by Nick Cave starts playing again. Uh, mm-hmm. The theme tune of Scream. Which I don't know why. You think there'd be some metaphor in the lyrics, but I can't find really much going on in Red Right Hand. I think they just like it. And you know how last last time you said that it was uh, the whole soundtrack was very similar, like or not the whole soundtrack, but there was parts that reminded you of what's the show? Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, yeah. Oh yeah. And I didn't notice it then, but this one I really did notice it. Yeah, Marco Batrami went for he seemed. I read a little thing with him where he was being experimental, putting microphones in weird places, trying mm-hmm. to have fun with this one, and I think he went with the brief. That people like from Scream 2 of, yeah, taking that Broken Arrow music and stuff. and Yeah, uh, it's definitely goofier music for the most part in this one, I mm, find. Yeah, it was a lot, of, a lot goofier, for yeah. sure. <laughs> Which I think we can say about the entire movie, right? It's a lot goofier. Yes. Uh, um, yeah, it worse. really was. Oh, wait, oh, Patrick Dempsey was in Sweet Home, Alabama. Oh, <laughs> that means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> So we're at Sunrise Studios. So we're in a big studio. Presumably, this is the actual studios where they were shooting stuff, I'm guessing. And they were allowed to use it. I don't know. Did you guys know? Does anyone know what studio what? it actually was that was pretending to be no. Sunrise? I don't know. What studio it was? It looked like oh, CBS. Oh, Max. So I don't know. Wait. Not sure. Wh- what was the question? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're in Sunrise Studios and we see a lot of the studio system here, but I'm not sure which studio is standing in a studio, uh, Sunrise Studios. Because this is a real studio for sure. Yeah. If I was a working actor, I'd probably know, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> the entrance, when they do that panning shot to the entrance of the studio, it looked like CBS Studios in, in Studio City. Oh, really? Okay. okay. But I could be wrong. You're probably not. You rarely are. So... We're at Sunrise Studios where Stab 3 is in production and we have a set recreation of the first film here. I love this idea. Yeah, it's great. It's really great. This wasn't in the script. This was something Wes Craven wanted to do. Now, I read something that he paid out of pocket to have this set built. Bullshit. Like, no fucking way. But he, I think, ordered this to happen separately and then they wrote a whole scene around it that we're going to get to later. But I love this idea. I love this idea of having, yeah, we're back on the street. And I think they could have done even more with it, to be honest. But we're back on the street. It's kind of set up where you think you would start the first scene here in Woodsboro, where you think, oh, we're back in Woodsboro. And then someone calls cut and you realize, oh, no, we're on the front of South Woodsboro. Like, that's what you think they would have done, right? Yeah. Yeah. But no, we're just writing. <laughs> Idiots. <laughs> that would have been you, good. You should have directed out or at yeah. least written. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and the producers are trying to get the movie shut down. But the director and the other producer, Lance Henriksen, I'm just going to refer to as Lance Henriksen, I'm afraid. Are you guys familiar with Lance's work? Yes. No. No? Okay. So you know the guy I'm talking about, right? He's the one who owns the house they end up in at the end of the movie. Big yes. producer man who threw all the parties and stuff. Yes. I mean, he became famous because of Aliens. He played the cyborg or whatever you want to call it in mm. that. But he's then had a long career in lots of shitty and lots of good horror movies. We've talked about him previously on a Hellraiser Hell World podcast. Go and listen to that, <laughs> where he does ridiculous things. So yeah, the producers were trying to get the movie shut down because of the murder of Con Weary. And they're worried that it's now inappropriate or it's dangerous or whatever. So we get introduced to uh, so many fucking characters. And I don't know how many we really need to keep tabs on. But we've got all the people who are basically playing characters from the first screen movie. We've got someone who's playing, uh, well, it's like a, a black version of Randy, I guess. We've got Sydney's being played. Oh, God, what's her name? I've forgotten her name now. Jenny McCartney. Emily Mortar. 
Emily Mortimer. Emily Mortimer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got Jenny McCarthy who's playing, I guess she's meant to be playing. What's her face? Rose McGowan. Yeah, Rose McGowan, I suppose, because she's the hot girl. Yeah, and then they also showed the garage opener with the blood, so I'm guessing it would be her because I was like, oh, wouldn't that be in the first one? But yeah, you think so? How did they just get to these characters in Stab Three? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but fine. Why are they still alive? We got a cop, a hotter cop playing Dewey. Yeah, so like, there's someone there for everyone. Mm-hmm. We got some fun lines in here of like I see why Tori Spelling and David Schwimmer didn't want to come back to do another stab movie. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then Gail comes to set. She meets up with Parker Posey, who is playing Gail. Yay! Yay, Parker Posey. I love Parker Posey. Uh, I when, love when Parker Courtney Posey. Cox comes into set, the first thing she says is deja voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> she does, not she? <laughs> oh my god. I love her. Yeah, I'm I'm in the rare, rare, rare minority of people who really just can't stand Parker Posey. <laughs> she drives me out of the wall. As um, in, like, yeah. in all her performances or just in this film? I think in every, other than Best in Show, where <sighs> overacting yeah. is, is required. <laughs> She's just, like, too over the top in every film I've ever seen her in. She, she was she good. Always, in, she, was, she was great in Louis. Oh, yeah, that's true. She was As good in like, Louis. Because she, she was I mean, the bookshop. Uh, yeah. Who works at the bookstore. She, that's true. She was good in Louis. I love her in every movie. Yeah, I think she's great. <laughs> she's just too, man. Like, she's this movie for me is exactly why I don't like her. She's just so over the top in this movie. Oh my movie. God, I love it. It drives me fucking crazy. It's like watching Scooby Doo again. I love it. Was she in Scooby Doo? No, she was not in Scooby Doo. Some people were, though. Matthew Lillard was. So to save confusion, I'm going to call these people like Gail, and then they'll be fake Gail. You know? Okay. But I don't yep. want to get into like, Dewey and fake Dewey and stuff. So Dewey is on set. He seems to be like he's basically guiding the series through the reality of what happened. Where he's like a consultant, I guess. His right arm has healed clearly. It's not yeah. fixed in a position, yeah. but he's still got a limp. Yeah, but the limp is a lot better. I mean, he, the way he carries himself, it seems a lot more real. I guess you know the stabbings <laughs> from Scream Two maybe realign some things. Yeah. <laughs> It cut another nerve, which sort of balanced yeah. it out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, was hoping, I was hoping they'd bring up something like that, where they'd be like, yeah. your walk seems better. Yeah, it, I got stabbed on another nerve or something like that. <laughs> or he's just wearing like, you know, he should be wearing like an eye patch or something. <laughs> yeah. But you got stabbed in the back. <laughs> like, yeah, it's seven yeah. a nerve in my eye. <laughs> um, did you notice the first sentence he gives before he sees Gail? He seems okay as an actor, and then he turns around and sees Gail, and he just like dissolves. Yeah, <laughs> he just goes back to like useless Dewey. And yeah. then, that was the moment when I realized, oh, I mean, I'm not saying he's a great actor normally, but this is definitely a character thing he does for how he deals with Gail being around. I guess is that nervousness, but to me, it just interprets as an actor who doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I wrote in my notes: Is David Arquette a real actor? <laughs> just based on that bit. <laughs> I mean, has he been in, uh, like, after Scream? Did he do anything else? Or, Ooh, like, during Scream? Eight-legged freaks. <laughs> really? Yeah. I love eight-legged freaks. He's in this big spider movie where he's just the lead in that movie. And he's actually pretty good in that movie, but that movie, again, is big over-the-top stuff. But he does it with more confidence in that film. Than he does does he here. do anything now? <laughs> Eats, sleeps, <laughs> writes journals about regretting life decisions <laughs> can i just quickly read you guys the second paragraph in his wikipedia page 
In addition to his acting career, Arquette took a brief foray into professional wrestling in early 2000, competing for World Championship Wrestling, WCW. During his tenure, primarily to promote his upcoming film, Ready to Rumble, Arquette became a one-time WCW World Heavyweight Champion, an angle that has been cited as pivotal to the demise of WCW. Fuck off. No way. Fuck off. That's insane. That is insane. In heavyweight? Wow. That's too good. How big is he now? Cited as pivotal to the demise. I That's love crazy. it. That's crazy. And actually, recommend- and then if you, yeah, if you look at his uh, wiki page, there's like a whole section on his professional wrestling wrestling career. Wow. That's fucking ridiculous. Is that? That's probably why they got divorced. Oh wait! <laughs> and on July 15, on July 15, 2018, Arquette made his return to professional wrestling, making his debut for Championship Wrestling from Hollywood in a losing effort against RJ City. Wow, that's crazy. I would have never have guessed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking for his IMDb. He's done nothing really of note other than the screen movies. I do think people should um, look at it. His most recent thing is a TV movie called Memphis Fire about firemen. (laughs) It's got a brilliant photo of him. I recommend people check out. I do know him actually as a director. He did a film called The Tripper. Which is a slasher film, hmm. which is actually who's who's addressed as now? Yeah, someone. Uh, it's it's a Ronald Reagan obsessed serial killer targets a bunch of hippies who are heading to a weekend long concert. Which I've wanted to love that movie so many times. I try to watch it like three times, but it's not great. All right, <sighs> David Arquette. All right, so what's going on? So it turns out, yeah, he's sleeping with fake Gail Parker Posey, or not necessarily sleeping with her. No. But there's romantic entanglement. I presumed from that first scene that they were sleeping together because she's yeah, like, yeah, so and then I. it's and then it it played out that they really aren't. Yeah, I think yeah. So. Gail gets dragged off set, and yet Dewey just keeps talking to himself quietly as if she can hear. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. She's like dragged. She's like halfway across the fucking set, being taken out the door, and he's like, "But yeah, still, it's great seeing you again, Gail." She's like still yeah. talking quietly. Like, What's going on? That's because when she's not around, yeah, he reverts back into his like, like grisly, uh, f- sort of film noir <laughs> style detective. Yeah, and he's doing his own. Yeah, he's doing his own little voiceover monologue. <laughs> monologue. <laughs> <laughs> and we get a fucking bizarre cameo from Jay and Silent Bob. So yeah, weird. So weird. <laughs> so weird, man. I mean, I remember. And then uh, what was he like? Oh, is that that like Asian? <laughs> yeah, thing about Chung. Asian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is this because is this because of her haircut? <laughs> oh, really? Is know. that what it is? No, I don't know, but I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not. I remember hearing weird, Kevin Smith talk weird. about this in one of his talks, um, but I can't remember now why it happened. I know they were being directly contacted. It wasn't even that they were just there. Like they were being asked, "Hey, do you want to come and be on it?" Yeah, because I was wondering if it was the same year that Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. Well, that was Miramax as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so. Miramax, and that was that came out in two thousand and one. So, yeah, and, oh yeah, and, maybe they were filming. And Harvey Weinstein, oh. and I think, yeah, they he produced all of yeah Kevin Smith's films. So, yeah, maybe maybe yeah, they were, maybe they were filming on set. Like, weird, yeah. weird cameo. <laughs> this this movie's stuffed with weird stuff like that, <laughs> including Sydney's dad. He's not at a convention. He's worried about her. Decided to check in. <laughs> 
I mean, why doesn't he live there with her? Makes no sense. Why is she living there by herself? Because he doesn't really give a shit. He's a terrible father. Very bad father. Terrible father. There's Um, a point where I was thinking, like, if you wanted to kill Sydney, you could have just followed her dad from Woodsboro to. Because he's he's like refilling her house with groceries. Um, and he's worried about it because he's saying she's made it like she doesn't even exist and she does, you know, some of that Nev Campbell acting, which I've noticed is very similar to Jennifer Love Hewitt. I think it's just part of your five acting. Yeah. Where she yeah. starts like squints a little bit. Does yeah. That's kind of like, <sighs> that's the whole, that's the whole reason. And I would be like, just like little weird, ch- it's like people are changing channels on an actor's face all the time <laughs> between three yeah. things. But I do like having a back. I need to back, learn like, those three things. Yeah. I don't get a job. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's that we just have to. We have to master our own three looks, which we just use yep. throughout an entire <laughs> film. Yep. Got it. Got it. And then a casting director be like, "Yep, Christina Masterson's got her own three looks. Perfect. Alexander Chad. Yep, he's got his three looks. Let's put looks too many. Alex, go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Regress. Go back, go back to the drawing board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's saying that's the entire point she's meant to not exist anymore her friends don't know her anymore she's just off the map she's basically just run run hid and but then she's having these dreams about her mother so she has a dream about her mother and then she wakes up or we think she's woken up and then she's still in a dream and her mother's at the window and this weird creepy ghost moment that alex we covered it before but am i wrong and this is where's craven doing nightmare on elm street stuff like this feels yeah completely out of that franchise rather than this franchise. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't like it in this at all, this dream sequence. I, I mean, I just didn't like the setup. I didn't like the mom like walking through the gate and it cutting back and forth. Maybe if there was like straight at the window, then ghost face, like it was yeah. much like, like cut and much punchier like that. But for me, it just seemed out of place and it was like, yeah, I don't know. I did not like it. It's it did very seem out of, out of place, yeah. I did. I kind of liked her in the window. She's saying, like, yeah. you're poison, you're just like me. But then she mm-hmm. just, someone clearly just said, now just gradually sink down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But do you have anything cool for me? Do you have, like, a cool prop or a little, you know, j- no, just bend your knees. <laughs> yeah. 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 I so mean, they really the paint the mom, though. Yeah. Like, she's no, uh, a, some slut and she's horrible, you know? Yeah, it's true. It Which really again, kids, dig that in. If you're listening, if you're listening, do what you want to do. Don't don't be slut shamed like Sydney Prescott's <laughs> mother. Yeah, and then it also affects Sydney. You know, yeah. like yeah, exactly. Uh, so Sydney wakes up again. Yeah, That's America. When... <laughs> <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the Jenny McCarthy, hot actress lady thing, is driving to the production office. She's in a car that's called Darling One because the second name oh, is wait, Darling. Wait, wait, but you didn't talk about the dog, her guard dog. That just, <laughs> that just hides when, when Sydney uh-huh. like screams and gets scared from her dream and wakes up and the, do- the dog just gets sh- notices and just hides. Doesn't even go to comfort her. <laughs> I didn't even notice. I didn't even <laughs> or notice. to guard her. <laughs> really? He yeah. just wakes up and then runs to the kitchen. <laughs> Typical. Good guard dog. She's fucked. She's got a gate you can yeah. hop over. A dad's visiting her. She's got a dog that does nothing. Yeah. She's Windows everywhere. She doesn't even close her blinds. No. Curtains, yeah. Anyways, okay, that's all. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Jenny, Jenny McCarthy, darling, <laughs> is uh, going to the production office to look for the director, Roman, who we've briefly met in that yeah, earlier scene where they're trying to shut the movie down. 
and then you've got these like for me it's cringeworthy lines you know we've already had some lines about how no one wants to be in stab three but then she's like stab three jesus i've got to get a new agent <sighs> come on yeah well is it the lines or is it the acting both i think right okay i mean that's a bad line i mean i will say right now i didn't up completely up front I've watched this movie many times. I never knew it wasn't Kevin Williamson who wrote it until doing this podcast. So I do think the guy does a decent enough job of replicating a Kevin Williamson style script. However, I did always think the writing in this wasn't as good as the other two. And I just presumed it was Kevin yeah. Williamson running out of ideas. So yeah, I don't, I, this stuff just doesn't work as well for me. And also I think, like we said before, it's hard. How do you do sequels to something where that freshness is gone once you've had that first one of like it gets yeah. tiring quite quickly to have self-referential stuff like this yeah mm-hmm. but anyway so she's there production office looking for Rome, and he's not around and then he rings his own office for some reason and she, yeah they're chatting she's not happy that she's playing a she's a 21 year old when she's 35 <laughs> or that she has to die naked <laughs> So then they run lines while he's stuck in traffic, apparently trying to get to her. And then she just starts stroking her boob for no reason while complaining about her nudity in the scene. You notice that? No. No. I didn't. Very weird. <laughs> Me and Katie just like looked at each other like, what? She was like talking and just saying, I wish I didn't have to die. And then she's just like absentmindedly stroking her chest for a second. <laughs> Very weird. And then Roman's voice changes and it is Ghostface and she freaks out hides in the wardrobe department. I remember this scene vividly because I loved this idea of hiding with all the ghost face outfits. Mm-hmm. Yep, I really yeah, like that. Yeah, that's cool. But again, they don't do much with it, do they? Because this could be a prolonged cool scene. Instead, she's hiding there and then immediately we see a ghost face sort of pop his head out like, Whoop! <laughs> and then he just steps right out straight away. This is the kind of scene that I feel like you need to like build that tension, you know? And instead it's yeah, just... Yeah, right, I feel like there's chase. a lot of that like setups with not enough of a sort of fulfilling payoff. Yeah, yeah. kind of like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Up oh, there, it just happened. It wasn't as uh, intense as it could have been. And I believe the direction for that. I really do. Like, mm-hmm. I think some of the script ideas are actually good, mm-hmm. like yeah. this one, but the directing just isn't as good. And I do feel, I feel Wes Craven's slight disinterest, you know? I feel his, this is one I'm doing so I could have made my other movie, yeah, with Meryl Streep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, she rings the studio as she's hiding, but the security guard turns off the lights and then locks her in. Yeah, we see the <laughs> costume's real. And then he just kills her pretty easy, really. Like, it's not even yeah. a very good chase. He's out. Yeah. Gail and Dewey getting drinkies. Gail reveals that she couldn't stay in Woodsboro. So that's why they broke up, basically, because he just wanted to stay in small town. She's too big for the little town. <laughs> Dewey reveals that someone tried to steal Sydney's file a few months ago, and, but he had already removed it, basically. So he thinks it's someone involved with the production of Stab 3. So we're starting to get our finger pointing going. Parker Posey is freaking out. Sorry. I forgot to say, that was Kill 3. Thank you. That was Kill 3. Parker Posey freaking out as someone is killing people in the order they die in the movie. And it turns out Gale is meant to die next. However, they then reveal that there were three versions of the script to keep the real ending off the internet. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> so they don't know which version the killer got hold of, which, yeah, as we talked about in Scream 2, is purportedly what they did with Scream 2, but we don't know if Kevin Williamson was, yeah, making that up or not. Now we get her bodyguard. Everyone loves her bodyguard, don't they, surely? Mm-hmm. It's, what's his name? Fuck, it's not his name now. 
Love Patrick Warburton. Yes. The Tick, Putty from Seinfeld, uh, mm-hmm. does voices in uh, Family Guy. Mm-hmm. Arrested Development, isn't he in? Um, Is that one? He's in something no. like that. He's in Seinfeld. I know him best, actually, for uh, the voice from The Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> he does so much cartoon stuff, got a very identifiable and identifiable voice. I love how when they walk out of the room, she just jumps into his arms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that bit's so really goofy. Parker Posey just jumps up and he's just holding her. <laughs> Turns out Julie's living in a caravan on her property. <laughs> it's called uh, an Airstream. Oh, sorry. An Airstream, I'm yeah. Bad. I'm bad. Much better. <laughs> I don't understand this entire setup, but okay. I'm presuming this is a temporary setup just for the shooting of the film, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Like, you know, he's her advisor. Okay. He her into, you know, the true Gale. So. And the bodyguard's calling him Dewdrop, which I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Hey, Dewdrop. So Roman's all pissed because they've been shut down and he thinks it's fucked because he's about to turn 30. <laughs> Fuck you, Roman. I mean, it's pretty funny. I mean, maybe I, I thought because we are, you know, mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. like world, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's talking to Lance Henriksen, all upset about it, and Lance Henriksen, he's thinking maybe it could actually help his career. And then the police turn up, saying Roman set up a meeting with Sarah Darling just before she was killed, so they think it's him. Take him away for questioning. And mm-hmm. then the cop borrows Dewey's phone. Which was a total yeah. red flag for me. I was like, oh, God, right there. I was like, oh, wow, he's the killer. That's too yeah. obvious, though, but... Yeah, they're totally setting up your old Dempsey boy. Yeah. As a killer through all of this movie, pretty much. I fell for it. I fell for it. I did too. <laughs> but I was like, gosh, why are they making it so easy to know? Now, to be fair, or in one of the really original smart? drafts, he was, he was going to be one of the killers in the original drafts. We'll get to a bit later, but there were actually multiple killers originally, and he was going to be one of them. Always. So Sydney's rung at night by a woman who's crying, who says she killed someone, and then the voice, it's her mum, right? Yeah. The voice of the mum. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this killer had this technology to steal people's voices right back at the beginning before we even started Scream 1 because it had to have been when her mum was alive to have captured the voice. And... Or he could have stole it from the movies that she was in. Oh, interesting. Oh, I think you got just a little too clever for this franchise and film <laughs> proceeding. <laughs> But the uh, thing that drove me crazy is why didn't she, when she went to the police office, why didn't she say like, hey, the killer has his voice changer where he could talk like my mom? Well, because I think the, that's the only reason really that we have that scene earlier that we're talking about where she's dreaming about her mother is because I think, and I don't play it up enough, but I think they're trying to say she doesn't know what's in her head and what isn't. Yeah. Like she thinks that this right. voice is her mom's voice, but it's, she thinks it might just be in her head. And I think that's totally an interesting way they could have gone yeah. down. She's so fucked up and paranoid that she's having these nightmares. And you could have this sort of Nightmare on Elm Street cross with Scream type film. Yeah, okay, fine. But they don't do that well here. So yeah, you're right. It's not conveyed right at all. You feel like she would just say, hey, my mother rang me. Yeah. But yeah, like it says like over the phone, it says, do as mother tells you, which is a direct quote actually from Friday the 13th. So mm. It's a nice yeah. little nod. And then she tells her to turn on the news. And then t- it turned the voice, of course, turns into Ghostface. It says, do you think it's over, Sydney? 
Which, yeah, like you were saying earlier, Christina, I'm finding, I do find this, okay, it's, it's leaning towards maybe it could get creepy because the ghost face stuff is feeling a bit more creepy on the phone, at least. Yeah, it is. And but the rest of the film's goofy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I even think, like, the ghost face chases are, like, the presence of his body is, is more powerful than the last one. I felt like the last one was kind of goofy. Like yeah. when he would fall and all that stuff or trip over things. Yeah. And this one, I feel like he's stronger. Yeah. Well, they're going to get to that when they get to the yeah. walls later. They yeah, say yeah. he'll be supernatural and all this mm-hmm. stuff. It definitely is. Because again, spoilers, there's only one killer here. And the stuff that happens in this movie, one killer couldn't have done. Like he's popping up all over the place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So a bunch of the cast, they're commiserating the film being shut down while hanging out at Parker Posey's house. Dewey's there, Gail turns up, sneaking around outside. <laughs> fucking weirdo. Mm-hmm. And he, she overhears sort of Dewey reminiscing about his romance with Gail and sticking up for her. And then Gail tells Dewey that they released Roman as the phone call came from a cloned phone. Back in the Clone Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gail figures out that two years before Sydney's mother met her dad, and this is just like, exposition just comes out of nowhere in this film. <laughs> just mm-hmm. these thrown away lines. Like, oh my god, two years before Sydney's mother met her dad, she left Woodsboro, and they're not sure where she went, and then all these pictures that have been left by the killer are of Maureen Prescott at their exact age before she met Sydney's dad. So there's something going on. That's what they're pointing to. Is What did she do in those years? What did she do? And, and in this fucking, for me, just terrible scene, they realize that the production photos of the character playing Sydney Prescott's mom in the film, Stab 3, is the same background as the real photos of Maureen Prescott in the same, like, it's oh, so dumb. All those years ago. So the studio, yeah, it's the same. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I guess Ghostface on purpose left that photo because it was the same one they had in Stab 3. Is that, I guess, mm-hmm. the reason? I guess, yeah. yeah. All right, fine. I love it. <laughs> I, I just really accepted just like, it. So I was like, okay. Stupid. Okay. So we're learning basically in a very quick succession that Sydney Prescott's mom had been there at these studios, involved in the film industry before she met her father, and all this stuff. Big rewrites, big retroactive stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so then Dewey rings a bodyguard, tells him to get back in the house. So Dewey's, the bodyguard's looking around, and then Ghostface pops out and just kills him. Another yep. one. Done. Kill four. Easy peasy. The lights go out. A phone rings. <laughs> Everyone has a phone now. So that's what they're kind of playing up here, I guess. We've seen yeah, the evolution of mobile phones in these. They don't have to and... emphasize that they're cellular phones anymore. Yeah. <laughs> And finally, people are carrying around guns, like Dewey. Yes, they you know, are. they are. Yeah, if if kids, if kids, uh, you know, young and listening to this podcast for no other reason, just watch these this franchise to see the evolution of the, the cellular telephone. It's good. You see how it's crept <laughs> into all of our lives. By two thousand, most of us have one, but still Wait, no smartphones yet. Oh, and faxes. Yeah, we know that's what's about to happen. So the lights go out. They're all panicking. Phone rings, but no, it's fax. <laughs> <laughs> it's rewriting the movie. So then they start reading the script as it happens. And then they start freaking out going, hang on, it's saying this. So does this mean we should be in the house or out of the house? Because maybe it's saying this, the killer's outside to keep us in when it actually wants us mm-hmm. out. And so they freak out. They all sort of run. And then one of them's like, no, I want to know what happens. And then another one shouts, wait for the can't fucking get movie. The script. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's going, it's going so fucking, yeah, postmodern meta. 
But it's kind of, you know, again, these scenes could be really fun. Like, I think reading yeah. the script as it's happening could be fun. Could be. I thought it I was fun. To, I had questions before of, like, what is Ghostface doing just sitting somewhere, you know, sending faxes? <laughs> like, yeah. But Alex pulled a prank on me once at my house uh, from the back, <laughs> <laughs> printing off scary things on Halloween that freaked the shit out of me. So, uh, that is yeah. true. That is um, true. Now I just think yeah. it's you, basically, standing outside yeah. his house sending faxes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what was it like? I, it was a riddle, wasn't it, to begin with? <laughs> so you sent like this riddle, and then we were looking it up even on the internet. It was it was at a time as well where everyone was doing these um, emails, you know, like fake death curses and stuff with Halloween. Oh, but you, were, sure. you were printing it off on our printer, and things just started printing off. Basically, that was a succession of stuff. It was freaking us out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's good, Alex. It. You only revealed it to me on the podcast. We were talking. I can't remember what episode it was. It would have been <laughs> early on, and then you revealed halfway through the podcast when I'm telling this story that it was you. Oh my god, I want to do that. That's <laughs> such a good idea. I'm still. We're still getting you and Bethany back, but when you least expect it. That's right. Yeah, you, you might, did you say might be 50. revenge. Yeah, you don't know. House blows up. The entire fucking house blows up because <laughs> the end gag at the end of this is like. Yeah, whoever smells the gas, basically. And then the guy's lighting a lighter to read the script. And Man, that was, that's huge. <laughs> the, the, like, CGI effects there have him kind of blowing up from the inside. <laughs> you yeah. know what All I mean? The <laughs> comes from inside him. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's just very weird. It is that's stupid. That's death number five. It's also stupid because if there's enough gas to blow up a house like that, which A, couldn't happen, you would fucking smell the gas. Yeah. Like, yeah, it would have been filling up true. for days. That's so true. But fine. So I think I've noticed about this And also, why would film... you guys, like, jump down the hill? There's a pool right there. Just jump in the fucking pool, Oh, it's pool, ridiculous. Right? They all just roll downhill for ages. <laughs> Possibly <laughs> died and all broken their legs. <laughs> yeah. um, the thing I've noticed about this film compared to the previous two, and compared to many sort of familiar structures <laughs> of horror films, is that there seems to be a lot of deaths really quickly at the beginning, whereas I find with others, you you have your opening kind of deaths, and then mm -hmm. you have a slow build to a big finale of like three or four deaths at once, whereas here we've like, we already have five, and I don't know if we're even quite at the halfway point yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a quintessential problem with horror sequels, is you can't, in the first one, you're right, you have a slow build, you get some of the characters, you care for them, so then the deaths matter. And with sequels, it's hard to do that because we understand the rules, so you just want to entertain as much as you can, mm -hmm. uh, which then normally means you don't care for the characters as much. So it is a tough thing. But we yeah. have a benefit here, which is, is unusual. Same director for three horror films in a row and a lot of the same actors. So we do have an attachment immediately to some of these actors, which is, yeah, gives the film extra credit. Uh, not credit, credibility, I guess. Yeah, everyone goes for a roll downhill. And then both Gales, fake Gale and real Gale, are calling for Dewey in opposite directions. So he goes running for the real one. And then Ghostface pops out and he shoots him and then falls down another hill because apparently he's that fucking stupid. He's like, yeah, the recoil sends him falling <laughs> forwards down a hill. <laughs> oh, what an idiot. And then Parker Posey comes out and punches Dewey for not saving her. Uh, so then Gale punches Parker Posey. <laughs> so then Angelina... The uh, fake Sydney turns up, and Dewey seems suspicious of her. He's like, "How did you get over there?" Yeah, she is squints. very suspicious in this movie. Very yeah, suspicious. She's just in it enough, and yep. not enough kind of thing. 
And she does suspicious things. She's kind of like the, uh, yeah, the news reporter in part two, where you're like, you just keep showing up, but you're not really yeah, doing anything. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then he sees there's another picture, and it says, I killed her on Maureen Prescott's face. So, they're now trying to say that there's been a third killer all along. That's what we've been told, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Are you guys happy with that sort of twist at this point in the movie? Yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for yeah. me at this point, I'm like, yeah, they're clearly kind of stretching it out a little bit to bring it all together. That's the kind of feel I got. Because you said at the end of the last podcast, Christina, you were like, you know, maybe you kind of joked, maybe there was someone else who had been in it all along. And Did I? Oh, God, I was pretty good, huh? <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> so the police officer, Dempsey Boy, wants to talk to Sydney, but only Dewey knows where she is. He's getting really frustrated. God damn it, Dewey. Obstructing justice. <laughs> yep. So Dewey decides, you know what, I'm going to ring her up. But hey, she's turned up herself because she's tired How of good. hiding. How good is David Arquette's double take? <laughs> <laughs> when he's on the phone so, huh? and he looks at her and he's like, does this slow? He's like, Sid? It's just like, oh, boy. I'm on the phone to you right now. I know. <laughs> How is this? I know. <laughs> David Arquette. Uh, so yeah, she decides to turn up to this movie around shooting Party of Five and other things, I guess. So you know what? I'm done. done shooting for a bit. Let's do some. Let's make some of this movie. <laughs> so Dewey says that Jennifer and Kincaid are the two people. So the only way, because she said someone rang her, the only people who could have had her number, Jennifer. Which one's Jennifer again? The girl playing, playing her. No, is it? Is that right? <laughs> I I I found it so hard in this film right to um to retain names. No, it's Parker Posey. Right. Okay. The only people who had access to his phone is Parker Posey and Kincaid. All right? That's the only phone that had his number on it. Yes. So. Yes. This is the question that I have for us. Very, very simple. Because we need to come back to this later. Because they really, like, they brush through this and then they expect us not to think about it later. And I'm hoping that they, they figured it out for me. But he, he makes it very clear here. The only two people who could have used his phone are Parker Posey and Kincaid. And at the end of this movie, the killer is neither of these people. Yeah. So how Weird. did Ghostface ring Sid when it wasn't Kincaid or Parker Posey? Mm, how did he get her number? He did that because, because rewrites and they forgot. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kincaid was my really killer at one point. And <laughs> Because there's no other point where Kincaid wouldn't leave. Doesn't make any sense. The big problem. Big problem. I'm hoping someone out there is shouting at the podcast, going, oh, you're so stupid. This is what happened. I'm like, great. Email us, mail at weirdgeeks.com and let me know. Because I genuinely want to know. I really, really want to know. How, uh, what, what is a good excuse for that? But anyway, he says, so he's pointing the finger at Parker Posey and Kincaid. And then suddenly, <laughs> contrivance much, Randy's sister turns up. Yeah. Who oh, we've yeah. never seen before. Yeah. And Sid seems to only turn up so she could be the one to go, Oh my god, it's Randy's sister. <laughs> <laughs> Who, by the way, totally fine. No, no like grieving, no sort of no sadness about anything. It's like, Hey guys, how you doing? Yeah, I just came here to bring you this plot device. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't mind it. It's the laziest. La I mean, this is the film with quite a lot of lazy writing. This is the laziest <laughs> bit of writing. Yeah, I traveled all the way to LA. Where was Woodsboro? Was that meant to be like in North Carolina or something like that? I thought it was like Ohio or something, wasn't it? 
Yeah, either way, it's far enough away from LA that this young, yeah. <laughs> like, teenage kid, I guess, yeah, traveled all the way to LA to just drop video. And they let her on set. Yeah. <laughs> In her trailer. <laughs> it wouldn't happen. Yeah, it was into the It's fucking oh ridiculous. But she's from the dollhouse, so it's fine. And it's just so phoned in, though. It's just so painful just to see this character. It's like, oh, by the way, we never mentioned it, but here's this other character. Give her nothing. And then just go, all right, now fuck off. And she just <laughs> walks off again, and that's it. And I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, well, surely she's going to come back in. Maybe she's the killer, was what I thought, you know? Do it like we're part of the Randy family. Gone crazy. Maybe she's as into horror movies as he was. But nope. Never see her again. So we get a videotape that Randy made before he died. Because that's what you do when you want to bring a character back who's dead. They were going to bring Randy back, by the way. Uh, they were going to have that he hadn't actually got killed, and his family pretended that he got killed to keep him safe. Oh, that would have been cool. And then he was going to turn up again. <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> Alex doesn't look happy by this idea. <laughs> I'd bring into it. Nah. <laughs> I liked Randy. I mean, can you imagine if they had done that and then also the idea that that Stu had survived the uh, yeah. electrocution. Uh, no, that's too much. Everyone's alive. Yeah. To the credit, it was the Weinsteins who shut the idea down. They thought it was stupid to bring Randy back like that. So we do get a videotape from Randy. It does make me realize how much I miss him, for sure. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So even I this video agree. is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. So he's saying, what you've got to ask yourselves, if you find yourself in, you know, more murders happening, is, is it another sequel? If you find yourself dealing with a back history, then you're dealing with a concluding chapter of a trilogy, which he says is a rarity, but it does happen. True trilogies are all about going back to the beginning and discovering something you thought that was true actually wasn't. Uh, he mentions Return rules, of the Jedi. Yep, mentions Return of the Jedi. His three rules are, number one, you can't kill them as easily in the third part. They're going to be more supernatural. Number two is anyone, including the main character, will die. And number three is the past will come back to bite you in the ass. To be fair to him, I like this. This gives me... These are all true. They're not like just making up bullshit rules. This is all very, very true rules. And it is a true thing of like, yeah, if you find something to do with the history, then it kind of gives you this... I, I remember the first time I watched it again, I was like, maybe this is going to go creepy. I'm getting a little bit of a chill of, oh, okay, this is, you know, all going to mean something different. We are in a concluding chapter of a trilogy rather than just another sequel. And maybe they're going to pull something special out of the bag. That's kind of how I felt the first time. I yeah, that. I was having moments like that and, and having this real sense of almost wanting Sydney to be involved. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> and I think, like, I think moving forward, there's a part of me that would love to have a twist like that. Yeah. I did... Either that she's like, I mean, obviously now we can say that she's not connected in that way, but like maybe mm -hmm. through the trauma, there's some kind of weird. It's not fucked up. Yeah. Just saying. I got worried that like, oh shit, she might die. Oh really? Yeah, You're... I thought maybe she might die. So I wanted. I was to a die. little stressed. <laughs> no, I was excited for that. I was like, "Are we going to no. get real consequence in this?" Yeah, that would have that would have really been sad. I mean, I definitely wanted. There are, I mean, there are many characters here. I definitely wanted to die <laughs> at yeah. this point. I was like, "Dude, he's got to fucking go. Like, he's got to go." <laughs> Gail teams up with Parker Posey, so we have fake Gail, real Gail in that a was complete fun. comedy sketch. I thought it was pretty fun. I mean, yeah, I remember watching this in cinema and the cinema were lapping it up. 
I was livid. (laughs) 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 It's just too goofy for me. I don't want these films to go goofy, but that's why they're pushing it, you know? The music is really goofy as well. They're going into the archives to try and find out about Maureen Prescott. And we have the archive keeper, which is Carrie Fisher. (laughs) Yeah. I was so weird. I didn't care. Like for me, (laughs) it was always like, I'm in. Uh. (laughs) They're like, hang on, you really look like shit. Yeah, don't say it. (laughs) Says you're so close. Apparently, they let her rewrite a chunk of her dialogue. I believe that. I can totally do that. You have to, right? It's Carrie Fisher. And she looks great. She yeah, she awesome. really did look great. She's it was so it good. was a fun little fun little scene. And the so line so about like yeah yeah no you do it man you do it you're the Star Wars boy. No no so just yeah the line that that was fucking awesome was that that she said that her that she was so close to getting the the role of Princess Leia but she didn't <laughs> sleep with George Lucas. <laughs> it's like all right. All right. Uh, I thought it was really funny, but then it also made me cringe because I just pictured George Lucas the big. Hamstery gerbil man. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of that in this movie, right? A, a lot. lot of, uh, you know, gerbils? who slept with Sleep, who. Sleeping with directors got, and producers. How did they get the, yeah, how did they get yeah. the role? And it's, a, it's very heavy. There is a lot. Very yes. heavy. Yeah. Very, very heavy about Hollywood mm-hmm. in the 90s and noughties. And before that, obviously, way because they're talking about decades the earlier. The 70s. The 70s. Yeah. About sex parties and, yeah actors having to sleep with directors and producers to get roles and you could look at it now with a different Mm -hmm. eye because it's the weinsteins behind this film Mm -hmm. but again like it or hate it i don't think they glamorize it in this movie at all they're just kind of like poking fun at the industry and kind of saying it's terrible but you know that's how it is yeah which is like going to the weinstein thing i think he even made a comment quite early on when when all this stuff came out of like that's how the studio system is or something like that. Like he made this mm-hmm. real kind of like, which people were like, whoa, like what the fuck? Like, which is funny because here it's like, it's mentioned. Yeah. And it sort of just is like, well, this is this thing. Like this is how this beast and machine works. Like it takes advantage yeah, of Yeah. Like this is like, how it is. Well, we'll yeah. get to, I mean, there's one particular sort of memory that they're going to be talking about later, which we'll get to that later where we have a problem with that. But I feel everything else they're talking about in this, again, not to get into the politics of Hollywood and our time right mm-hmm. now with the Weinstein stuff, but there's a big difference between abusing non-consensual sexual relations with someone else in the industry and kind of what I feel this movie is doing, which is saying, yeah, actors were sleeping with producers to get roles. You know, there's a difference between being abused and a consensual bad sort of format that the industry is running at. And unfortunately, for many, many decades, that is how it was running. And then you have characters in this as well who are like, yeah, it's going to turn out later on that the girl playing Sydney only she had to sleep with the producer to, in order to get that role and all this stuff. So yeah, I feel like even in modern days, I'm sort of fine with the pokes they're doing with it in this film because no one, I don't think anyone, like it is always consensual I feel in this film and it's just more talking about how shitty the industry is and it's kind of, you know, making a satire on that, which I think that's a good way to talk about it through satire at this point. And not many films were talking about it at this point either. No, so I feel yeah. like it's kind of, in a weird way, yeah. it was kind of dealing with something not many films were. Mm-hmm. Particularly, yeah, when we get to that scene at the end. So, <laughs> Carrie Fisher says she knows every face because she has a respect for the unknown actor. 
<laughs> I love that. Oh boy. Good luck with the unknown actors in LA knowing every face. You just see the face, you're like, oh yeah, I didn't remember this lady. But you're not looking. She's even it's not even the same name. She's like, you're not looking for that name, you're looking for this other name. It's like you fucking kidding me. Uh, it's pretty funny. Whereas if you made this movie now, it'd be easy because you'd just run like face recognition computer scan or something. True. Pop up. True. So it turns out Maureen Prescott had a different name in those days, and she was doing horror films under Milton, the same producer who's doing the Stab movies, Lance Henriksen. Uh, which, yeah, we can definitely draw our Weinstein comparisons if we want to. Mm-hmm. Sid bumps into Angelina in the toilets uh, after she's had a little scare, and she sees that Angelina, who's playing Sid, fake Sid, has got a phone and a mask, but she's like, they're just souvenirs from the set, and this was going to be her big break, so she wanted to like take them. And the boots. And the boots, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're always looking at the shoes, aren't you? <laughs> you're on shoe watch. <laughs> Definitely pointing the finger at this point at fake Sydney and at old Dempsey. Yeah, for sure. So Sid mm-hmm. heads over to stage 16 and sees the set of Woodsboro. And her house is in front of her. This is a cool moment. This is very, very Wes Craven's new nightmare to me. This is really cool. Yep. So cool. Yeah, I, thought, I felt the exact same way. Very, like very it. new nightmare. I really like well, it. Why would she go in there? I mean, I guess you have to make her go in there, but I well, would, I would not go in there. Yeah, no, you wouldn't. But she's by kind yourself? of bewitched by it all. Visits her own bedroom. Mm-hmm. We're getting sound bites from that first film, which is cool. Yeah, the that posters cool. have changed, so now we've got Creed posters. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it now, even though we're not at the end. This, I think, was my favorite part of the whole film. Yeah, yeah it was really, really great. Me too. Mm-hmm. Seeing Sydney in the set of Woodsboro, kind of replicating scenes from the first film, playing on that psychologically. And there's a cool chase scene that we get here. The only cool chase mm-hmm. scene for me, really. Uh, Ghostface jumping out of her. They fight, chasing just like the first film. But we have a cool moment where a door opens onto a set below. Yeah. And she chucks him onto yeah. a bed. That was cool. That was so cool. That was great. And then a voice whispers for her to follow it. And it's her mother's voice. And she's in a set of her mother's bedroom and dead body which then stands. So I'm guessing that Stab, Stab 3 Return to Woodsboro is meant to be like a prequel maybe or something. I don't know. Because you've got all these characters returning and then they're dealing with the oh, death of the maybe. mother for the first time. Maybe. I do like the, the mother mm. bed bloody sheet thing. It's cool. Again, very Nightmare on Elm Street. It's like yeah. uh, Nancy spit, you know, in the first nightmare when she's in the body bag standing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, during the cops bust in. And then, yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> I was like, oh, what happens next? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, but no, that was a cool scene. I like that scene a lot. Lance Henriksen is talking to Roman, who's all upset, and then the two girls and Dewdrop come by uh, to chat to Lance. So Roman is excused, and it turns out it's Roman's birthday. I do like how they throw in that line. He's like, yeah, Roman's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and they're having a party at Lance Henriksen's house later on that night. So Lance is kind of trying to justify himself. He's saying it was the 70s, everything was different. It was for girls like, uh, he would throw these parties and it was for girls like uh, Maureen Prescott to meet men who could get them parts if they made the right impression. And then he does say the one line he says, though, is things got out of hand and maybe they took advantage of her, but she only got what she invited or something. I'm not really sure how he phrases it. Yeah, something like that. So this is, I mean, And again, the charges were never, were dropped or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is 100% where it does feel a bit more icky. And it is impossible yeah. to keep the politics of Weinstein stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. But the weird thing is, again, it's like, I want to know, you know, were they telling this writer what to write? Because 
the writer was obviously wasn't a part of all of this sort of stuff that you think Harvey it was wasn't doing. no but you think that the writer you think that the writer didn't think this idea up but you know like that whole that whole studio system and culture i think was like an open secret anyway from yeah the 30s 40s like for decades like i think it was a known thing yeah. of like this is how studio heads will behave this is how young actresses can be exploited or taken advantage of or how they can get roles so i mean do you, yeah do you just think it was happenstance really it wasn't or do you do you think it's right a new like could it just seem something if I'm writing, if I'm brought on six weeks before and I'm writing and I'm pretty early in my career and then the Weinsteins, who, you know, a big fucking company at the height of their power at that point, uh, bringing me on and I could have a new relationship with the studio, the last thing I want to do is go, oh, I've heard all these stories about Harvey. I'm going to write it into the fucking <laughs> script. Like the last thing I would want to do is, is, you know, worry about severing those bridges, you know? I mean, were there already stories of Harvey back then? Oh, everybody knew. Oh, for like, sure. I mean, this is the yeah. problem with the stuff coming out of people now. It's like everybody knew. And people yeah. on the Every- sets knew. And everyone was like, oh, I told him to stop doing that. And stuff like that. You know, it's like, as Alex was saying, lost. Yeah, so it's, it's weird. So did the writer... Yeah, so, I mean, did the writer write this to call him out? Look, or- I, don't think, I don't think he would have called him out. I think... Yeah. I, I think if he didn't want it in the film, he would have... Uh, if, like, the wine scenes didn't want it in the film, yeah. he would have taken it out. I think there was an attitude both that is being explained here and that existed in real life. And consequently, I think Harvey, like I said before, Harvey Weinstein was quoted as saying of like, well, this was the studio system. This is how it worked. Like I was just doing yeah. that, like, but it was all consensual, blah, blah, blah. Like I think, yeah. I, and I, I think at this point in time, these men were invincible. There was nothing like, yeah. you could, yeah, you could yeah, talk nothing. about they it. They weren't you could worried. Make, you could make comment about it, but what's it going to yeah. change? Like there's nothing. Yeah, it is what it is. Consequences well, for what- that's what I wonder is because huh. Wes Craven, again, I don't know. I don't know any of these people personally. We still don't know at this point of podcasting anything about Bob Weinstein or not, but obviously he knew stuff that was going on because everyone said new stuff that was going on. And again, we should say this is not just all about Harvey Weinstein. Like you're saying, Alex, this is all over the Hollywood industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, obviously he seems to be one of the most egregious. But Wes Craven seems like a very nice guy in all the interviews I've ever seen of him. So it does seem like something if you're making multiple films with one of these people you know this stuff has been going on. The stuff mm-hmm. about Rose McGowan would have already happened in real life, and I'm sure people around her knew about that stuff. That Wes Craven may have wanted to comment on this a little bit. And like you're saying, Alex, I think this is what you're saying, which I agree with, is like Harvey Weinstein sits down. Again, we have to remember these films. Dimension is Bob Weinstein. It's Harvey's there, but it's really Bob's company. And Bob probably was worried about his brother and how out of hand that stuff was getting. So this is something where in a weird way, I'm like, I wonder if any of this was meant to get through to Harvey, because like you're saying, you're Harvey and you watch this. And I think to his ears, it's almost sympathetic, you know, to his ears, it's almost like, you know, oh, this is just, you know, what we do for roles maybe got out of control or whatever, but you know, she kind of invited it to happen to her and all this Mm -hmm. shit. So it's very, I don't know. It's very interesting. And she was just too innocent. You know, this town's not for the innocents. Yeah. Because again... Uh, I, you know, I, I do want to make that point. Like, there's a big, big difference in the line between because you know, I, I know actresses who rely upon that stuff to try and get roles. So that I know people who I've met in my life are actually upset with what's happening right now because it makes it harder for them to get roles because they can't sleep with producers and directors. Really? Yeah, I do. Really? I'm not friends with these people, but yeah. And the, and but the thing is, it's like again, if it's consensual, then these can be bad business industry things. But whatever. You know, I don't, it's none of my business. Like, I don't really care. Like, you know, it's whatever, as long as it's consensual. But it's a big line between that and then what we're talking about here with Lance 
and what he's meant to have done and this stuff of they took advantage of her yeah and like she was clearly clearly like the Harvey Weinstein side of it where it's like well we took advantage of her but she invited it and then her side of it which is no she wanted to press charges and that's a big big difference I feel between like yeah the actress we're going to get later who said oh fuck I slept with the producer to get that role and then something like this very where different. she was raped this one yeah, well, she was raped yeah. but then the they producers never say that also word. They're very careful to never say that word you'll notice that but then she was also i mean blamed you know what i mean they blamed yeah. her yeah and then it's like her fault. Her out of the industry. she shouldn't have been here yeah. she's too innocent it's yeah it's really interesting and what this film is saying and in light of what's happened now it's all kind of to watch it back is it's definitely kind of icky yeah. and like ugh, like this is yeah. Because, yeah, for me, watching it, yes, it is making these statements, but there is still very much that attitude of like, well, but that's how the studio system is. So, well, particularly back then, though, they keep saying, oh, back then, everything was different. That's a literal line he says. It was the 70s, everything was different. Yeah. It's yeah. like, okay, but you're making this film in, in the 90s, noughties, when the it's same stuff was on. happening still with the people on. who produced this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It is weird because it's like, yeah, it is icky, but then it's also, um, I mean, it is also calling it out kind of truthfully. Well, that's in what I mean. In some ways, like, you know? So for it's sure. Like, part, yeah. of me feels, for sure. part of me feels that this movie is maybe, and we have no idea, but maybe Wes Craven and Bob trying to get a message across to Harvey in a way or like something out to talk about this stuff. Particularly Wes, I feel, would want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. But again, like Alex is saying, I think Harvey would watch this at that time and just hear that stuff and go, yeah, fucking right. She had it coming, you know? Because that's <laughs> like, the yeah. thing. It's like it took another 16, 17 years before shit really hit the fan. Yeah. And women felt empowered enough to finally speak out and finally have a community of people around them being like, yeah, fuck yeah. That has been yeah. happening and that is wrong. And like mm-hmm. we have to fucking sort this shit out. So it's like... Yeah, it's crazy. Like you see it, and you see the like the, the time and the gap in space, and where we're at now. Like it still was a huge kind of journey. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Like it's, and again, uh, that's what I find interesting. interesting with this movie because it does deal with both a little bit. You know, it deals with yeah. essentially what I call insider trading of film, which is like if people were paying more for a role, or like paying to get a role or get a break, making a marketing deal, or if having consensual sex to get a role. That's basically insider trading. You know, it's like. You know, and female empowerment, and this is the argument that those people I, I know have said, which I do agree with, is like, well, the argument is they get to, they're female and they get to do what they want to. If they want to be a stripper, they should get to be a stripper. If they want to be a businesswoman, yeah, yeah. they can do it. So it's like whatever they want to do with their life. And if they want to have consensual sex with someone to get them ahead in life, then that's up to them. And I kind of agree with that. But then there's a difference between insider trading in the film industry and then, yes, these situations of females uh, being don't have a abused choice. by men in power, yeah, being yeah. like yeah. raped, manipulated, exploited. like mm-hmm. exploited, yeah, exactly. And you could always argue where does exploitation come, but then I think that goes both ways in sex, in gender politics, you know, which yeah. is there's never going to be a true equality with that. But we've opened anyway, a whole big can of worms. Didn't think we'd be talking about this in Screen Three, but there you go. I mean, you can't ignore it. You can't. You can't like, ignore this is the it. Same, exactly. so and you, you shouldn't can't. ignore it. And it. The pro- my problem is, is that I read this as this Lance Her- Henriksen is Harvey Weinstein, but Lance Henriksen is just immediately likable to me because I love him from other movies. Oh, really? So it's very difficult for me. He was not likable for me. I mean, I mean, his character wasn't likable for me. 
No, no, I'm not saying his character, but I'm just saying like when I see him, he's a familiar face who it's a fan favorite, you know? Yeah. So that's immediate. And this is a problem with movies, again, immediately manipulative just by context of the, the actor. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, here we go. So what's going on then? Kincaid tells Sydney that he uh, all he knows about the trilogies and that in the third one, all bets are off. Um, and then it turns out Kincaid grew up in the studios and for him, Hollywood is all about death. And then does one of my pet peeves again. Where he does, I'm a homicide detective. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot. <laughs> While sitting in your police station. <laughs> and then they have the fucking terrible line where she says, what's your favorite scary movie? And he just leans in. My life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. <laughs> Are you guys still flagging him as he's the killer at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, that whole of. scene too was her trying to figure out if he is or not, you know, like her, yeah. you know, sizing him up and also feeling attracted to him at the same time. <laughs> Sydney or you? Sydney. Okay. Yeah. And I think for me, I, you know, the like, it's why like, I oh God, like- I like him. Maybe he is the killer. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like that he was the killer because in the previous two films, they were so, well, certainly the actors, like the Billy Loomis, uh, Skeet Ulrich and Timothy Oliphant, like they were so heavy handed in their creepiness that whenever <laughs> they kind of played up moments like this with, with Patrick Dempsey, I was like, yeah. ah, okay, he's the killer. Yeah. There's going to be no subtlety. And, and this is a movie without subtlety. So yeah, makes sense. Um, we're about to fuck a Posey who I've just written down is too fucking much for me. <laughs> I'm sorry, but he's just too over the top. We get it, Al. You don't yeah, like Parker Posey. Come on. Oh, God, come on. She's just like a cartoon character running I around. I love her. <sighs> Can't do it. At least she's not a cookie cutter, you know? She's not a cookie cutter? Yeah. At least she doesn't just have a three looks. That's, well, That's what no, you she's guys got one say. look, which is maniac. I um, love her. <laughs> But I also love Nev Neve Campbell, Nev Campbell, whatever. Nev, not sure. Yeah, it's Nev. Sydney rings Dewey and tells them all to go to to the Romans party at Lance Henriksen's house. They go, all right, Sydney, you shouldn't. Why are you there? And then she just hangs up, and they go, all right, let's get to let's get to the house. So they head over to to Romans party. Sydney isn't there. Only fake Sydney and Black Randy, who we've ignored for pretty much the entire movie, right? Yep. He's not really in it, and I like this actor. He's a lot of fun, normally. It's yeah, funny because yeah, they opened the last film. Sad. They opened the last film with that whole thing about there's no never any black actors in horror films, blah blah blah. Yeah. And then kill <laughs> kill them. And then in this one, they just have him and he's like he's barely in it. Barely yeah. in it at all. So they're hanging out at Lance's house. It's a huge palatial, you know, how everyone I think imagines a Hollywood producer's house looks like, basically. This house is also a set, which was a uh, fun fact. I'm going to be talking about it in a few weeks' time because it was used on Halloween 7. Oh, cool. It's a cool house. And you could definitely, like, picture, like, crazy shit happening in the 70s in that house, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, secret secret little doorways and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Roman's talking about it. He's saying there are supposedly hidden rooms in the house where Lance would hold parties with screening rooms, drink, drugs, and women. But no men. So Roman and fake Gail go looking for it in the basement, while fake Randy and fake Sydney go looking for it upstairs. And then Gail and Dewey just stay on the main floor. A lot of characters to deal with. It's funny. It's funny. Sorry, how you get, like saying fake blah blah blah, fake Gail. In uh, yeah, when I've listed the kills in my notes, it's I've got 
kills like blah 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 other actor kill blah 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 black actor kill blah 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 actor Gale there's a thing they give you nothing else to really recognize them from like there's just yeah. nothing yeah so Angelina sorry Dewey what's going on so Roman finds a room full of costumes and props and all that stuff um, and then Gale tells Dewey to use caller ID on his cell phone to find out to like ring Sydney back basically and then it rings through to the closet nearby <gasps> Where they find not only a phone, but a voice changer. And then immediately, after two seconds of speaking through this voice changer, understand everything that's happened. And also, wouldn't you be calling from a blocked phone? You can't star 69 a blocked phone. You'd think so, wouldn't you? 90s. Uh, Noughties. This really bothered me. How do you literally just be like, oh my god, dude, he's got all of our voices. It's like, you talked for, for two seconds, it's ridiculous. That is not like, there's no way you'd come to that conclusion immediately. But we have to. So then they just, you know, split up. <laughs> so Dewey heads upstairs to get those two. Gail heads to the basement and she finds Roman dead. Supposedly dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that as kill six. But it's not. Retracted. Yeah. I was surprised. What the fuck happened then? I was he pretty was heading, surprised. He was heading down with fake Sydney. And then we find Sydney just hiding. Yeah, so I don't really right understand there. What like, did Rome, how quickly did Roman just hide, jump in the thing and put some blood in <laughs> Yeah. And then what did fake Sydney do? Because she doesn't even seem to have found him necessarily. It's very weird. <sighs> very strange. So Angelina runs away saying she didn't fuck that pig Milton just to die with second-rate celebrities. But Ghostface gets her. So, she's out. She's out. Uh, she was one of my, maybe it could be her. I hope it's her. Kind of. I just wanted a, like a a female ghost face. Yep. I read that it was like a she like originally was one of the possibilities of being you know one of the killers. She was, mm-hmm. she was indeed. She was. We'll get to some of the extra endings uh, at the end. But yeah, so she's dead. That is number six, then, is it? All right, for real. Yep. Ghost face. She is the real six. Dewey, and then stabs him again, and then fake Randy gets stabbed, and then runs away again. Oh, you motherfucker! <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some terrible, terrible lines for poor old yeah. fake Randy. Ghostface is popping up all over the fucking place. So I'm thinking at this point in cinema, I remember thinking, all right, there's got to be more than one Ghostfaces again. Maybe this time we're going to get many. Maybe this time it's going to be like a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's also the bit like where he chases Sydney and then he suddenly appears in the body like with the sheet over him again. Yep. Yeah. Like, I just thought like... like <sighs> turn up. Yeah, I thought that there was multiple, but then at the end, I was like, oh, well, I guess maybe he just really knows shortcuts the of the house and the all the secret rooms really well. He just planned it all out. He yeah. set props up everywhere ready. Yeah. If you want to, there's a very, very, there's a brilliant slasher film called Leslie Vernon, The Rise. No, what's it called? Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is the first three quarters of it are a found footage kind of film. It's a documentary. And it's I mean, of a guy. It's really, really good. It's like a guy, it's a comedy horror uh, basically of a guy who wants to be a huge slasher icon. And so he's showing how he sets up everything in a normal slasher film. So he's explaining how a character can run from this place to this place, like set up everything, make things break, set prop weapons for the uh, protagonist to pick up, but then fail them. Like all of the sort of tropes you get in slasher films, they set up in this brilliantly. And then the last quarter of the movie, it turns into a real film that's like a genuine slasher film kind of thing. Oh, Highly recommend it. It's a really cool movie. We get another soundproof scene, like the second film, with this double mirror. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. But again, they don't do much with it. 
uh, like pounding. And then we get doing it. Look, Gail, the mirror's moving. <laughs> then they yeah. just start shooting the mirror down. And then Parker Posey, she gets stabbed. I know, poor Parker. Yep. Bye bye, Parker. Number that seven. That is kill nine. Oh, kill nine. Oh, yeah, we just jumped up. Is that including yeah. though retracting? Uh, because Randy has already died. Fake Randy died. He was kill eight. Well, hang on, but then we've got fake. We've got to retract fake. Um, the fake oh, sorry. Death. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Mm-hmm. Parker Posey, yeah, is kill eight. 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 Yeah, you're right. Okay. Kill eight. And yeah, fake Randy was kill seven. Dewey and Gale split up again for no reason. I'm just like, I'm sighing at Come this on, point. Guys. I'm like, Come are you on. kidding me? And you got this ridiculous scene where like, yeah, like Dewey like runs, talks to her, then runs away, and then Ghostface pops out, and then he runs back, and it's like ah, it's meant to be funny, I think, but it really doesn't work. These are not good timing. Uh, Gale tussles with Ghostface, and they slide down into the secret room, and Ghostface is supposedly unconscious at the bottom of the stairs, but just sort of slashing out randomly whatever <laughs> you say and anything. Um, and then Ghostface just knocks Dewey out, which is like why do you why don't you kill him? But no, just knocks him out. Uh, and then he falls down again, down the stairs to like piano notes, just going clum, 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 clum. Yep. It's ridiculous. Like, turn into Tom and Jerry at this point. Yeah. Uh, we're back at the police station. Sydney's just hanging out. <laughs> she is just hanging out. Isn't <laughs> She's she? literally just sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> and then she sees the file on her, so she goes, oh, I'll take a look at that. And then a phone rings, and we don't learn anything from the file, do we? It's just photos of her. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, an accumulation of articles and photos. And Is this meant to be making us think it's the cop, like he's obsessed with her or something? That's what I kind of thought, maybe a yeah. little bit. That's what I thought. Because I just thought it's a police file. <laughs> I was like, I expected us to get some information from this police file, but there's nothing. No. Um, and then a phone rings and it's herself on the phone. I do like this. I like the mirror voice where it's like repeating what she's saying. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's creepy. And then it suddenly changes the ghost face and says, don't you want to know who killed your mother? And then we see Sydney eyeballing a bulletproof vest. So we know what's going to happen in the end. Oh, ending. I didn't see that part. You know, yeah, it is. Like, right. no. looking at it. No. She looks over at this bulletproof vest and they cut to it. So I was like, all right, well, you know what's going to happen. And then she steals a gun from the desk as well as the cop's car. And, you know, the whole police station just lets mm-hmm. her. Yeah. <laughs> so Lance two guns. She steals around. two guns. Lance hasn't been around either, has he? Who? No. So we're presuming maybe him as well, right? He's up there. And- oh, yeah. I thought, I thought for sure him. At, at I just thought point. he was out. For some reason, I was like, eh, he's out of town. <laughs> well, no, because he said, wait for me to cut the cake. That's right, yeah. So I, I was just like, forgot why about have they, how, why hasn't he shown up yet? He must be the killer. Tied up in litigation. So she, uh, Sid arrives at the house, sees the dead bodies outside. He gets her to use a metal detector. Oh, yeah. I just so happen to have that, you know. <laughs> she is, which he just dropped next to fake Randy's body. Yeah. Yeah. Why not even displayed properly. She's like, yeah, pick that shit up. He gets her to get rid of a gun and then Ghostface punches her. But somehow she has another gun? Yeah, she got two guns and put them in the exact same spot, you know, on oh. her ankle. Yeah. It was a very, very clever idea. It was idea. a trick, yeah. Because That's she good. knew that he was going to have a metal detector. <laughs> he fucking knew that, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> if there's one thing that always happens in slasher films is the killer gets you to use a metal detector on yourself. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a brilliant idea, but also yeah. a really stupid setup. <laughs> 
Yeah, so then she shoots him, but then he disappears, and then Kincaid suddenly appears out of nowhere in a very similar way to Billy Loomis in the first film. So then we're all thinking, it's got to be Kincaid, right? But then Ghostface comes back out and knocks Kincaid out, but as we know, there's always more than one killer, so we're thinking, ah, oh, could be in it together. Mm-hmm. Chase ensues, Sydney finds the secret doorway to the screening room, and it's showing footage of her mother on the screen, and then Ghostface reveals himself. He says, I'm the other half of you. So immediately, we should know what's, what's going on, right? Because he's saying it straight off the bat. Yeah. Turns out it's Roman. He's been doing the kills on his own. And he is Sydney's brother. Roman has orchestrated all of the three movies. Uh, he was so pissed off. Sydney's the victim. She's portrayed as the survivor, the star. But yeah, like her mother got pregnant, presumably from one of those parties. So we're getting into, again, Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. Mm. Remember the conception of Freddy? Like, his mother raped yep. by a thousand maniacs and she doesn't know who the father yep. is, basically. Mm. Getting into Freddy Krueger territory. Doesn't know who his father is. Went to, like, find his mother, but she rejected him and just told him to fuck off, which is like, well, this is a terrible woman. <laughs> we stood up for Maureen Prescott before for sleeping yeah. around, but now, like, she's terrible. <laughs> yeah, but she was raped by three guys. Sure. It was, yeah, sure, it was, but a, it's not you know. Stop blaming the victim, guys. Well, don't blame the children. <laughs> she could at least, like, be nice to him. She, like, he's really, like, says that she was, yeah, very mean. Yeah, you guess well, that's it. Like, contacted him in private later and just be like, look, I'm sorry how I behaved the first time around. Yeah. You know, I've got my young daughter and husband to think about, and they don't know about you, but let's, let's sit down and talk. None of this would have happened. Exactly. Exactly. Just a little kindness to your child, and none of this would have happened. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, just keep your dicks in your pants when somebody says no, and then none of this would have really happened. That yeah, also, of, yeah, of course, that being the main point. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't feel the children are to blame in any any bad things that happen. It was so. Yeah, we're also going again here. So what I do like here, this wasn't in as we covered at the beginning. This wasn't in Kevin Williamson's original brief. This was not who he intended the murder to be. Didn't intend this. I think this is better. I'm going to say it right now. I think. Whether or not they do it well enough, then the idea of her having a brother and it tying in for a familial reason is a better idea than Kevin Williams' ideas of Stu still being alive, being in prison, cults, and all that stuff. Yeah, I thought this was a great, yeah. great twist, a great idea, and a great, like, a connecting everything, you know, together. <laughs> Alex is remembering something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, because I was going to ask you guys what you thought of it, the twist, and then I was just thinking of what you were both saying. <laughs> yeah, you don't think it was like, because I'm still undecided whether I feel, I mean, I, I, there's a part of it, yeah, that I do like that sort of connectivity of all three films and yeah, that there was a third killer. But then there's a part of me that's like, is it just dropped in too late without kind of any, because it wasn't necessarily thought of in a way that that started with Scream 1. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So there was nothing dropped in in those previous films that could have hinted towards this, and it's kind of being tied back in retrospectively. So I'm kind of I'm seesawing between, between yeah, that. Yeah, at least in the second one. I think it's hard in the first one. Uh, yeah, what I'm saying, just to clarify what I'm saying, is whether or not they pull it off well is a different matter, but I like the idea yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it would have been nice to have something in the second one for sure that hints that maybe she could have had a brother or something, a weird photo that's found and then ignored or something. And then definitely that original ending of Ghostface being there on the chapel or whatever, like near the bell, yeah, watching the ending yeah. scene. Oh, there's still someone who's been around the whole time. 
Um, I do like the idea of one, like, because again, my problem with the endings of the screen movies is always like, okay, we find out some teenagers and I don't care. Roman, again, he's too young. I prefer it if he was older, but I like this idea of someone who had real reason, someone who's tied to it personally, and someone who's orchestrated all of it. It's sure, it's implausible and doesn't necessarily work when you go back to the others, but it, you know, it makes it creepier for me, just that idea. Um, and another reason I love it is, again, it's tying into Halloween. So no spoilers for stuff with Halloween, but you, they very quickly create the staple in that is he's only killing people from his family and he'll kill anyone who gets in his way. And he is, uh, Michael Myers, as you'll learn immediately in the second film, is the uh, brother of Jamie Lee Curtis's character. So we're doing the sister brother thing and echoing, echoing, you know, they started with Halloween, they're ending with Halloween. And I like that. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, Dewey and Gale free themselves and a wounded Kincaid gives them a gun. And then I do also like this is like, cause she's saying, you know, but yeah, in trilogies, the villain always dies at the end. And he says, that's right, but I'm not the villain you are, mm-hmm. which I think that's great. I like also villains who think that, you know, as most villains do, that they're in the right. As all villains yep. do, I think. Lance is there. He's tied up in a similar way to her dad in the first film. Again, her dad's just nowhere to be found. <laughs> Can't be bothered. Taylor, I brought you shopping. You, you handle this. And Roman has recorded a tape in Sydney's voice. He's going to tie it all back to her saying, yeah, kind of like what Alex was saying. He hoped it was sort of going to happen, that she broke from everything that happened. Her psyche broke and she is actually the murderer. Mm-hmm. And then we have a pun on Final Cut saying, I already have it. Oh, boy. And then we get, uh, <laughs> he puts a real beating on Sydney uh, and then shoots her. But we can see, so here's, here's one of my problems, because, yeah, I've seen that bulletproof vest. I know she's going to be wearing it. We're all fine. However, for all these scenes, she's wearing a very tight top. We can yeah, see her tight little tummy. Yeah. We can see her boobs. Like, she's not wearing a bulletproof vest. There's yeah, it never looked like she was. <laughs> was not. Was not at all. What are you going to do? Wait, movies? I'm also glad that they killed the producer guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Gail and Dewey are trying to get into the room for a whole bunch of this. But Sydney's gone. She gets an ice pick, stabs him a few times. And then Trivia I like this point. Bit. Trivia oh, point. Scott Foley. That's his name? Is that the actor's name? Yeah. The play the brother. Uh, his reaction when he gets stabbed with the ice pick was real because Nev Campbell missed the padding that she was meant to, <laughs> to hit no. and actually uh, got his flesh. So that reaction was real. Wait, Fuck. what happened? Sorry, you pa- you like a froze. When Sydney jumps out and stabs him in the back with the ice pick. Yeah. Do you remember that part? Yeah. So his reaction, Scott Foley, the actor, his reaction was real because she missed the, the padding that was in his clothes where she was meant to stab onto and got his actual back. Fucking hell. Fucking hell. But it wasn't a real ice pick though, right? I mean, I don't think it like pierced him yeah but even like a even like a blunt ice pick it's gonna be so thin if you're like going full on it's gonna exactly yeah fuck man man oh i do like they hold hands as he's dying it doesn't necessarily feel earned because she's just found out she has this brother and i don't really get the connection there you know but she gets like why like it just shows that she has empathy for like yeah she understands why he kind of did it like what happened you know like he went through some shit like God. yeah i like, I like not the intention that it's of right it. but and again not to uh keep doing this but it is this isn't me putting it into the film this is just definitely what it takes stuff from this is also a moment from a halloween film as well 
And yeah, it's nice. Albeit um, just copying Halloween a lot by this point. <laughs> I don't know if either of you would be able to answer this for me, but would a knife cut through a Kevlar bulletproof vest? Uh, from my experience, <laughs> um, <laughs> no fucking clue. No clue. Yeah. yeah. Probably not. So then I do like this as well because they're saying, oh my God, like, you know, to be careful, Sid, he's going to come alive again. She says he wasn't superhuman. He wasn't superhuman at all. And then he pops back to life. So he shoots <laughs> him over and over until the headshot. And I kind of, I remember that really pissing me off in the cinema. Cause I was like, oh, they've actually gone mature then. Like they've gone with, you know what? This isn't just stupid slasher sequels. This is a trilogy. We have our ending. We're going to go mature and say, yeah, this wasn't a superhero. Uh, sorry, supervillain. This was just a person. Mm-hmm. I man, she feels sad for me. I like that. And then when they bring him back, that kind of pissed me off. <laughs> I, I, I didn't mind it. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> then we end pretty quickly, actually. Dewey and Gail hanging out. Sydney in her Monterey home. Dewey's proposing to Gail. Yeah. Saying, you know, we'll get divorced at some point, but let's just, you know, do this for a bit. <laughs> and then Sydney comes through that gate that you can hop over and decides, you know what? You can hop over this, so I'm just going to leave it open. Which <laughs> <laughs> means nothing. And then we get this. I love this moment. I really do. Well, actually, no. So just before that, we get Kincaid suddenly turning up. He's at sleepover as well Hell for some yeah. fucking reason. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I was waiting for him. So you got this romantic thing between them? Because I didn't oh get any God, romance between yeah. them at all. I mean, they were totally flirting with each other. At the, I mean, he was flirting with her at the police office. I didn't get that. I mean, when he yeah. arrived at the house, I thought he was the killer. Like, Patrick Dempsey does this, like, chin down sort of look, and he says this one line, and I'm like, oh, okay, he's going to be revealed. And then he gets yeah. Ghostface punches him or whatever. It's like, yeah. Okay. But never at any point was I like, oh, he wants to hook up with this, this uh, young woman he's professionally assigned to. I mean, just protect. the way he looked at her. You couldn't tell? The sparkle in his eye. There's a bit right at the beginning where his partner is like calling him out on, oh, he's a bit, he's a bit obsessed with her. But I felt that was more just to set up, oh, he might be the killer because he might be obsessed with her. But I definitely got nothing from her towards him at all. Mm. I think you're just projecting, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, guys. But I know. But I do. I know I when I don't know. As ridiculous as he is jumping out with his fucking little arm brace on and a big bowl of popcorn. <laughs> Going, hey, Sydney, we're about to watch a movie. Come see. And she's like, what type of movie? And he's like, come and see. It's going to be hardcore porn. Yeah. No more horror films for us. I'd really love this moment after that, where she, like, the door suddenly creaks mm-hmm. open. Yep. There's just a the sound so of, good. like, birds and outside. And she looks at it, thinks you can tell she's thinking about closing it, but then she doesn't, and she just walks away. And for me, that is a wonderful ending mm-hmm. to a horror film, particularly a trilogy like this. And it, fin- it rounds it off nicely, her her arc and we go to red right hand again uh in the end yep. credits yeah i i love the I ending. Like ending i felt like it was like um you know it's like okay i could sleep at night now yep you know it's just like it checked all the boxes for a happy ending yeah no i agree uh so Wes craven shot three different endings for this movie because he didn't want the cast or crew to know what the ending was they had a whole bunch of different stuff. Some were mildly different. I mean, they've never actually been released. So it's all just kind of, yeah, hearsay and what was contained in those. There was also, though, however, an original ending which continued with more footage from Randy's message. So that was what they were going to be sitting down to watch there at the end. Oh. Randy had more VHS stuff. Um, and he was yep. going to talk about other genres different than horror and how a happy ending would be nice. 
basically. Ah. Uh, which, you know, could have been nice. But again, I'm happy with the last moments we have rather than a Randy's face for my last moments. Yeah, I'm happy. I'd rather it be the way it, it was. But I would like to see the last, the uh, three other versions. Yeah, so like there's n- they've never been released on the Blu-rays or the DVDs, any of those endings. So it's just like people have written a bit about what they were. But they didn't even show press a screening of this movie until two days before the premiere, which is very, very unusual. But they just really wanted to keep it a secret of what the ending was going to be. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, they did originally, they were going to have two killers. Uh, Emily Mortimer's character, Angelina, was going to be helping out with old Dempsey. So yeah, that, that, I'm kind of, I'm happy that changed. I'm happy to want two killers. It's nice just having one. That, that feels like a twist to the screen formula, where every other slasher film is just one, but I don't know. Like, and the film when it came out, sorry, there was also, oh no, we did that bit. Okay, fine. Uh, the film when it came out, it actually broke records for the number of screens it opened in. At the time, it, it was the biggest, um, the most amount of screens across America for a film to open with, ever. Wow. Which was 3,467 screens. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. A little bit, a little fun fact, actually, is Matt Kiesler, who played the Dewey, the fake Dewey, he originally auditioned to play Billy Loomis. Mm-hmm. I, I could that. say That's that. cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and Kate Hudson. Did you read about that? She was cast in Scream 3. This is kind Mm-mm. of funny. She was cast in Scream 3 in an unconfirmed role but was then replaced prior to the shoot. However, in the VHS box art for Desert Blue, a film she was in, they list in brackets after her name, Scream 3, as if she was in it. Weird. It's really weird. So yeah, like I said, made $162 million worldwide, uh, lowest ranking on IMDb, and in the wrap-up, we're going to get into Rotten Tomatoes, because that's a new thing we're starting to do now. Do IMDb when we go through the films. When we get into the wrap-ups, we look at the Rotten Tomatoes to get a different perspective. Mm. Um, and how it's ranked but yeah the lowest so far but still not i mean it's 5.5 that's actually still fairly decent for a horror sequel i want to know how you guys felt about it was it better or worse and i think you know i know you guys enjoyed number one a lot we had some mixed feelings with number two but still enjoyed the ride this one's definitely a different vibe but the question is did we have fun with it yes so what do you like with this one and i'm gonna bear you bear in mind that scream 4 didn't come out until 11 years later Whoa! So. <laughs> it's it's you know anything can happen with Scream Four, so my question is, what do you want when they're eventually going to come back to Slum Newsletter and how did you feel about this, Christina? You look like you gagged. Okay, go on. <laughs> okay, I actually mm-hmm. I really like this one. I like it more than Scream Two for sure. So I really enjoyed it. I I liked the twist. I liked the concept. I loved you know that the whole set. I thought it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I loved the ending. I liked the beginning. I liked the middle. So it was pretty good (laughs) in my book. (laughs) And what I would... uh, What what didn't you like? You kind of liked everything in this movie. What didn't you like in this movie? I liked... I think I liked everything. You liked everything in this movie? Yeah, I mean, the only thing was... I don't know. I thought Jenny McCarthy's acting was a little funny, silly. Dewey's always kind of not, you know, the best. But I I mean, you know, acting. But I still really want him to be in it. And I still like that he's in it. I mean, it is what it is. What, um, what, don't give away necessarily your rankings till we get to the wrap up. But does that mean this is in contention? for you to be better than the first one or is it like in that ballpark even not necessarily no. in that ballpark. Okay. no 
but I really liked it. Okay. I mean, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe next week it'll change. But um, anyway, so what I think... Oh, and then also, you know, I was reading an article that came out this year how about um, Scream 3 and the whole um, hashtag Me Too movement and things like that. So I thought that was really interesting in comparison to what's happening now. And, and it also said that, which I didn't know this, and I never even really thought this, that all the Scream movies are very... are all feminist movies. Right. Do you think that? Well, do you think that? We're not women. We don't get a comment on this stuff. Yeah, you do. Do we? Yeah, of course. Huh. But I mean, it was interesting to read that because it did make me think back. And I did feel like, especially because I just came off of the all of the, what movies did we just watch? My horror Romero's movies. Dead. Yeah. And how poorly portrayed the women were in that and how, how much... And how much more powerful they are in these Scream movies. No, I was just going to say, Romero's Living Dead, to be fair. Again, like, I'm going to keep having to stick up for him. Like, he tried to rectify his first film and tried to write strong women. But they were in different decades, very different decades from this, for yeah. the most part. But it's still, you know. Yeah, no, no, I, I hear it what It still is what it is. Yeah. Well, do you but anyway, feel this so is I, I, it was female... really interesting to read that article and to look back on all of these films, and especially this film. So I've argued before... In fact, I may have, uh, may or may not have fallen out with some of our friends about stuff where I've argued before that uh, Wes Craven has, all, for a majority of his career, not in his early career, where it definitely was uh, not the best female characters for sure, but he's been he's always written you know strong female characters. Now you can obviously they may not be the most feminist, and we can argue about what feminism is in a film or what can make something more or less feminist than another film. Yeah, I know it's there are tricky. a lot of different things. Yeah, which I don't really, I don't really know exactly myself. But it's one of the things I've always, look, I'm going to be brutally honest, which, you know, people I feel these days aren't brutally honest about stuff because we want to jump onto bandwagons and we want everyone to like us in this social media era. Brutally honest, I've, one of the things that always, I've had three things that always attracted me, well, many things, but three of the things that always attract me to horror movies. One, they could break all the rules of other film genres. Yeah. they could do whatever they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that before. Yeah. Um, another thing for me was that females were, it, they almost always have females in the lead and they had strong female characters who were going up against all odds in the world and normally overcoming it and there's a reason why you have the terminology of the final girl in horror movies because horror movies were the genre where they let actresses do these roles now on the flip side of that they also always wanted a supporting cast of sort of ditzy yeah jenny mccarthy kind of actresses who were getting their boobs out and yes, as a teenage male, I admit, I like seeing a strong female lead who is the person of like, that's the person I want to be my friend and I want to hang out with and talk to. And then, yeah, you like seeing some female nudity in your movies as well. That's me being brutally honest. But that was something I always found really great about so many horror films, in particular Wes Craven's ones, was I thought he did treat females really well. And I do think mm-hmm. Nev Campbell's character has a really good arc in these films. And because of she that does. ending, very strong very mature i'm sure if you did it now yeah there'll be stuff you'd change and i'm sure yeah, there's, you can I make it more the, feminist the, the shaming yeah the, all the sh- slut shaming and yes. and even um sydney's character feeling you know a guilty about what her mother did and not really you know yeah feeling ashamed herself definitely but i don't think like i don't think men i think if you did it now then all the men would probably be written as you know terrible people and they, they could be bad in a different way kind of thing you know mm-hmm but I think, I think all the characters in these films are actually written pretty equally. And I think that's something that Kevin Williamson should be given a lot of credit for. And yeah. his influence on John Hughes movies, you know, 
which were just like it was more interested in teenagers being teenagers and less in gender roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I can I can understand that. I can see where that comes from. And Alex, that's it. What do you think? What do you think about <laughs> Scream being a feminist trilogy? But is it? That's what I'm asking Alex. What he thinks? I don't know. Been very quiet. Doesn't want to. Doesn't want to yeah, get involved what do you in think, this Alex? conversation. Do I think it's a feminist trilogy? I certainly think it has elements of that for sure. That's a good way to put it, Alex. Because <laughs> yeah, I don't think it 100 percent is. There are elements of it, but I don't think not there is 100%. any such thing as a 100 percent feminist movie because I guess. That, what that me- means changes every few years. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think That's the true. only real, again, like for me personally, I don't like the word feminism anyway. I like the word equality. And even that is yeah, something that can't really happen because we can't ever have true equality because everything is built differently. But um, yeah, I think these are pretty good equality movies, particularly for the 90s. I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you want to know? Oh, are you done, Alex? <laughs> yep, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what I want to see for the next one, I want to see um, Patrick Dempsey and oh, Sydney. Gross. 11 years later, in, the, you know, their house in the woods with their family, the kids are grow- growing up, and then maybe this shit starts to happen to her, you know, eldest daughter, and okay. she becomes the new victim. I thought you were just going to new... paint a rom-com. Nothing bad happens, they just make out, and they go on nice walks. <laughs> 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 they got a dog. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like... all that happens, you know, with the little, like, I- you know, with the little, mm. like, inserts. So mm. just a bit, so you want <laughs> Nev Campbell back, right? I do, but in a, in more of just, like, a back, like, just not as the main. Okay. You know what I mean? I feel like the torch should be passed to maybe the new... Generation, I think. Yeah. I guess, like passed but on I to mean, sort of like a Adam Driver or a Daisy Ridley oh, yeah, or a John Boyega. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> you want them to force awakens it? No, I mean maybe, but but I don't know. I don't. I mean that's just exact. That's just what came to mind first. Okay. Okay. Because to keep it in the family, you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. Yeah. Do <laughs> um, you? You do? Uh, I don't know. I understand. <laughs> uh, Alex. How do you feel about Scream 3? What do you want from a Scream 4 11 years later? Scream 3 for me was a movie that that like offered so much but didn't quite deliver for me in so many different moments. And I kind of mentioned that as we went through this podcast. It was sort of this constant feeling of just feeling a little unfulfilled. I mean, I do like the the overall idea about her brother and it kind of connecting the the three films. But it just didn't feel delivered in a way that was satisfying or that felt like it made enough sense. It felt like a bit of a stretch for me. And actually, my main issue with the film was that, you know, I think it was a a nice attempt by Aaron Kruger to to really tap into the Kevin Williamson, Williamson kind of vibe and sort of zip with the dialogue and the characters but I didn't care enough about any of these people. They were all just kind of like asshole actors. It's like, you know, I live enough of that in my day to day. Like it's, it's, but there wasn't enough from them to kind of be invested. 
and equally because Nev Campbell's role was reduced so much, as much as I enjoyed that she was there and connecting those films for me, it just it wasn't actually enough about her. Like I, I didn't, I would have, I would have much preferred that that we had more screen time with her and it was more her story and her struggle throughout these years and, and kind of coming to terms with that and like this nightmare just constantly being revisited and then yeah having this psychological element with her mother and her mother's death like i liked that but it just it didn't fulfill that for me it kind of teased it but it never it never delivered and then the same with some of the set pieces like there were cool ideas the ghost face uh costumes all hanging and jenny mccarthy going in there but again it was like it was it, it teased it but then it it finished it so quickly and for me the real like the only real highlight where I was like, this is such a great idea was, was the moment when Sydney goes on set, you know, like you mentioned, Al is very much like new nightmare, very similar, but it was, it was a really cool idea and it was cool. Cause it, again, it played on, on Sydney's psychology, which was, I think a, that, that idea for me was like a nice mature turn for the film so far. And it pulled it away from that goofiness and it allowed to sort of build on the, the sinister, darker motives of Ghostface and, and Roman, like you were mentioning, uh, Christina, like through the phone, like the motive and, and his sort of intensity was more dark and, and it played on that. Like that bouncing off her own psychological sense was, was, was cool, but it, it just it didn't feel accomplished enough for me. It sort of very much to like, here's some really cool ideas, but just didn't, yeah, it didn't follow through. So I found that, I found that quite frustrating. And then to have then these characters that I didn't necessarily like or necessarily care about made it very difficult for me to, to enjoy it as much as I wanted to. Because, you know, like with the second one, it was very much a second film. It, it retread a lot of the same ground, had a lot of the same rhythms, but like they stated, like mentioning those rules, it just tried to push it a bit further and it was goofy and silly, but it, it still delivered on those promises kind of, whereas here is like, you know, it tried to turn it around and I think it had some solid ideas, but yeah, it didn't quite nail it for me, which was a little bit disappointing. So yeah, with an 11 year gap, I mean, for me, again, I, I want to dive deeper into Sydney's psychology. I, I would like to see her, yeah, if they, if they do bring her back to, well, I guess I kind of know, but, but like for, for it to be... Yeah, that it wasn't happily ever after. That the, the the scars of this whole experience, the deep psychological scars, are still affecting her and resonating with her. I would love it if she was Ghostface. If she went on a killing spree, I think that would just be a kind of crazy, weird twist. But Christine does, is that face? Does no, that remove Alex. It? Yeah, I mean, it would just be interesting. I certainly don't want any Patrick Dempsey <laughs> rom-com <laughs> love. I, I could do without him. Okay, you guys, I love a rom-com. Just, just, you know, and so you know. start your sorry. own podcast. Not sorry. I'm always happy for Dewey. Like, I've, I've reached a point with Dewey and David Arquette where it's just like, it's a car crash that I just can't turn away from. <laughs> and it's just, He's just like, a family member who just keeps turning he, up. Yeah, yeah he is reunion. like family. Yeah. I can definitely, yeah, agree with Christina that maybe it, because of that gap, there has to sort of be this passing over for it to sort of feel new and fresh again and not sort of, although, you know, like thinking of 
the last two Chucky films, like Curse of Chucky, how it was like, is this a reboot or is it not a reboot? Mm-hmm. And then there was like these small little elements, which, yeah, was like great fan service and actually yeah, yeah. tied in this, this, this story. Something like that would, would be awesome. Like using that same kind of format of like, okay, overall, it's going to look and feel new. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be different, but we're going to throw in elements here for you that, that definitely bring it into the same universe. I'd love that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of, I remembered really, not really liking this one, but I remembered liking this one more than part two, and I don't. And what's frustrating for me is kind of what Mm -hmm. I think you're saying, Alex, it's a mess for me. And now knowing the back history of it, it makes so much sense. Like understanding now Weinstein's trying to pull back the blood and the violence, Wes Craven not really wanting to do it. I feel that apathy here from a director point of view. Nev Campbell compromised with the shooting schedules, like a different script writer having to come in, changing stuff like on set, like that scene that we keep talking about that's so great with the set. Like Wes Craven came up with that while they're shooting it, you know? It's like, it makes a lot more sense now and I'm more sympathetic, I think, towards its flaws. I think actually considering its flaws, it's kind of fantastic that they did anything. I think it's kind (laughs) of very successful considering all of that because it does still have some horror elements in it. But for me... This isn't what I want from a horror sequel. Like, for me, the problem is when you're going for comedy in horror, what works for me is stuff like Evil Dead. It is stuff like Shaun of the Dead. It is stuff where you realize that the balance between horror and comedy is so thin. And Mm -hmm. people laugh when they get scared. So it's really about pushing those horror elements around that, you know, bend into comedy. And here they don't. Here they just go for Scooby-Doo slapstick, you know comedy elements and that doesn't work for me at all it's just not my type of humor if you like it then great christina seems to like get a you know is, is enjoying it and no but and that's great but it's just not to my taste i want horror in these films um and i want the comedy to come from the horror and instead the comedy comes from comedy you know and that is a problem for me however the storyline is better than two like this is the thing i will say mm-hmm. i think kruger has come up with a good story here i find it hard anything like you're saying alex set in hollywood because yeah we live in la and even before i live in la found it not that interesting a place but after living in la yes i'm around these people <laughs> i don't need to see them in films too much but i would prefer to be in woodsboro for sure but i think the story is good and i like the ending and i like it all ties back in i really i remembered it i think what i remembered liking about this movie was despite it not being done perfectly despite roman being again a kind of too young and a bit weak and despite him coming back to life again it was an ending that satisfied me in that yes this all kind of makes sense it's got some poetry to it. And then we have that lovely ending, yeah, with her standing there in the door, which was mature and sensible. And I thought that's the right way to end this. So, I, I, yeah, it's a mixed bag for me, you know? So there's stuff I really like in this, the stuff I really, really don't like in this, including Jane Silent Bob. <laughs> and, and I do really struggle that it just, yeah, doesn't feel much like a horror film anymore. So I will say I'm happy. As much as I love, you know, slasher films and I love 90 slasher films and I'm happy they didn't make more screams for a while. I know at the time I was just salivating for more. I would have done anything for more 90 slasher films, but I'm happy salivating. they definitely took a long break. salivating. I really <laughs> was, man. I would. I watched anything, anything. And I'm going to talk about some of them in the wrap-up because I've been going back. I know you went back today. I know we did last summer films. We can talk more mm-hmm. about them in the wrap-up. And I went and I've been watching other Kevin Williamson films from that rough era. I think we talked about it as well. They joined up again later to do a werewolf film called Cursed with a very young Jesse Eisenberg and people. Uh, where they tried to recreate what they did with Scream with werewolves. See, I'm going to talk a bit about that stuff in the wrap-up. But 
But I was I was desperate for more Scream films, more slasher films. But looking back on it now, I'm happy they took a break. I'm happy they took the 11 years. I have seen Scream 4 a few times. I know exactly my memories of it and how I felt about it, which I'm not going to reveal here, obviously. So it's very hard for me to say what do I wish they would do next. Yeah, I mean, I will say, I don't remember everything from Scream 4. I do. It is 4. So I think we should clarify that right now. It is Scream 4. It is a sequel. This isn't, you know, a reboot. They were hoping, though, however, for a new trilogy. They expected there to be four, five, and six. That's what it was going to be set up for. And we can talk about it when we get to it, whether it didn't happen because of failure at the box office, critical or financial, or because, very sadly, Wes Craven died shortly after Scream 4. Uh, That would be the last movie he got to direct. So, yeah, we'll get to that next week. But, I mean, I would say, yeah, I I want less comedy. That's what I want moving forward. I want to, like, if we've got an 11-year gap, you can reset expectations. We don't have box office kind of pressure from what the public are reacting to. We could get rid of Dewey in the interim, as far as I'm concerned. I do want to see Nev Campbell, because I think that is a story. I would, yeah, I just don't, you know, or if they're in it, one scene or something. Like, I don't want them to be the focus. Like, Nev is fine. She needs to be integral in it in some way. But it is 11 years, so kids are going to be hard, because it's, you know, they're going to be 10 max. So that balance is difficult, but I just want to see it get back to horror. And the problem Scream has is that it's known for its social commentary on the time. So we're talking about 2011 when this next movie came out, I think. So mm-hmm. it's going to have, yeah, it's got to have to have no longer, it can't be postmodern anymore. It has to be meta, right? Yeah. So it's like, how are they going to deal with that new generational shift and what kids expect from a slasher film? In a time when slasher films weren't coming out, slasher films still aren't big again, you know? So yeah, I'm very, I'm genuinely very excited to see how you guys feel about Scream 4 because it's a film that, yeah, I've wanted to get to talk to people about and not many people saw it that I know. So. It is on Netflix, Scream 4. It is. Scream 4 is on As Netflix. well as the TV series. Yes, two series of the TV show, which I'm waiting for as much of that as I can. I might not have gotten through all of it by wrap-up, but I'm trying. It depends when we record that. But yeah, we'll talk about that one in the in the wrap-up episode. Thank you guys for joining me Thank for you. the final part of this 90s trilogy before we get into the next section. And if you've been listening to us, please do support us. Please help us out. Just go on over to weirdgeeks.com, weirdgeeks.com, and you can branch out to all of our social medias. You can branch on out to all of our podcasts by just going on iTunes or on to, what are we on, SoundCloud? And I think, are we on Podbean yet? I know we're going to get on there. But just type in We Are Geeks, We Are Geeks, and you'll get this. This is a horror show where every single Friday we do one of these, talking through a different installment in a retrospective franchise. We've done Child's Play, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Hellraiser, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Romero's Living Dead. We've done some Danny Boyle and some Star Wars, which are not horror. Hey. Sometimes we do a regular podcast. I think we're going to do a regular podcast when I go back to LA in a couple of weeks' time. And we're actually going to cover, we're going to talk about the year so far, because we were over halfway through the year, guys. Crazy. <sighs> well over halfway through the year. And it's closer to next Christmas than it is last Christmas. Craziness. Uh, We're going to actually do an episode where we talk through the films so far of this year and the games so far this year and talk about some of our favorites and some of our least favorites. And what else? Yeah, if you're on WeAreGeeks.com, why not hit the We Are Tessellate button? That's going to take you through to our publisher because we're a production company run out of London, LA, and Tokyo making feature films, short films, music videos, all kinds of weird stuff. We're going to be doing video game apps in the future as well. Uh, We're all involved in the industry, whether we're actors, producers, writers, directors, whatever. And yeah, you can support us purely by buying our products because we do all this for free. We don't put adverts, we don't put sponsorship and all that stuff. So if you can subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes, seriously, it takes you 30 seconds. 
makes a huge change to us. And then when we have products, if you can support it, go check out our films. That means a lot. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm Mr. Al White on all the social medias and on Xbox. M-R-A-L-W-H-I-T-E. <laughs> all about you guys. I'm Alexander Chad. <laughs> <laughs> and together. <laughs> I am Christina Masterson on all the social medias. <laughs> At underscore hi, Christina. And I'm Alexander Chard on... On Instagram and Twitter. A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R-C-H-A-R-D. Thank you guys for joining me for all the screen movies. appreciate it a lot. We'll be talking next Friday. I normally like to leave it a little teaser for something that's going to happen in the next one, but I can't actually think of something that's not a spoiler, so I'm not going to, because I don't want to ruin anything. Other than this, there's no jail in Silent Bob in Scream 4. Can't confirm. Have a lovely <laughs> week, everybody. We'll see you next Friday, and we're out. Geeks! 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 <laughs>